Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting on our everyday lives. Another incredible show ahead for you this week, but I must say that both my guests have experiences to share that may not be suitable for our youngest listeners, so I do advise discretion. My first guest is Rebecca Hampton. She is sharing her heartbreaking story as a mother who has seen her daughter sucked into trans ideology and how a loving mother-daughter relationship can be dismantled by those in the trans cult. I then will be talking to survivor, author, activist and advocate for child sex abuse, Gloria Masters. We will discuss her new initiative to allow children who are in abusive situations to be able to signal for help and the enormity of our woeful legacy of child sex abuse here in New Zealand. Marty is in Australia, so I introduce a new man in my life for Media Matters, and we will discuss what's happened in politics this week, and I will finish things off with a new feature, the Woke News of the Week. It's a busy morning, but we can sneak in some of your feedback here on RCR. This is in regards to a story that we had last week that there was a furry at a local school that I was aware of. I do hope these schools are providing the proper bathroom facilities for these wee animals at school. 
Cats need litter trays and dogs need a bit of grass and a hydrant. Have they been registered with the council? Are there leash laws? Parents need to come with them and clean up the doodos on the school ground designated as dog bathroom areas. Do the school or parents supply poop bags? Can't wait to see how they cope with a dog with no toilet paper because dogs don't use toilet paper. If you're going to be a dog, do it properly. That's in regard to a ferry that is now at a local high school here. Uh, next up, loved your talk with Helen Joyce. I worked with people who transitioned to the other sex and all have very severe trauma and mostly sexual backgrounds, sadly. So these agendas of trans ideology are just preying on traumatized children to their advantage, as opposed to the beneficial trauma therapy to allow them to learn, grow and heal. Yes, Helen was incredible. Marie and Marty, Hipkins mother, Margaret, question mark, helped craft the abysmal Marxist education system we're lumped with, source NZCPR, um, Stephen Frank, so that's from them, uh, from the Rachel Stewart interview, which we played on replays with in Ball's Breakfast that I did the other day. Uh, that's fantastic, Marie. Thank you so much. Another one from Rosemary. RCR is packed full of interesting and informative conversations, and there are so many voices that we've never heard before, such as Di Landy and Karina Shields. And from Leslie, thank you so much for interviewing Helen Joyce. She's an inspiration and an intellectual giant. We need to keep hearing these messages of Veritas regards, Leslie. You are so true. And from Tracy, Marty and Marie, the dynamic duo, indeed. And I'll have my partner in crime back next week. From Delwyn, hi Marie, what a great interview with Helen Joyce, two incredible, articulate, intelligent ladies talking through the issues and was so special to listen to. It was also really helpful as we struggle with a family member who has followed the fashion you talked about. I feel like I'm looking everywhere for tools to help deal with it and when it comes up. We all know the whole issue is as stupid as Helen said, but it's incredible to think that the current trans fashion is not all is easy to pedal back from. And when these kids want to grow out of these dumb decisions they've made as young teenagers, it all just breaks my heart. Keep up the great, amazing work. And that's from Darwin. So thank you so much for all the positive feedback. Again, if you want to send us your feedback, 2057 is the text number. And that email address is inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. Go on, own up. How many of you were secretly singing along to One Night in Bangkok? I know I certainly was. I just love that song. But it is now time to head back down to Aotearoa Farm and see how the animals are faring. I've based the series on George Orwell's classic story. If you haven't read it for a while, do take the time to read this masterpiece. The relevance to today is stark, and it shows the true brilliance of Orwell. It has been a busy week on Aotearoa Farm. The pigs are busy buffing their trotters and greasing their snouts to a high shine to win over all the farmyard in the looming election. The free-range pigs have come in from the bush and the beach to the central farmyard to stake their claim over how things should run if they were in charge. They live happily off the largesse of all other farmyard animals and believe it's those animals living in the richest pastures that should relinquish the spoils of their hard work across to all that they deem fit. It's also only them that can enjoy the sunny skies and the warm days. Do as they say. Not as they do. 
The boyish co-leader and his dim-witted sidekick would much rather be visiting other farms than working on Aotearoa Farm. They believe firmly, Conrad, that their time-honoured plan for the farm will work much better under their watch. Chippy Pork, however, he's had a tough week. The fracar in the barn saw a tragic loss of some beloved flock by a violent weasel that was thought to be contained, but obviously was not. Chippy's sow of farmyard justice, a former student radical called Silly Faku, got stuck into the fermented grain stocks and crashed a farmyard tractor. She then ran back off to her ancestral coastal home on the farm's easterly most reaches and left our poor chippy pork having to arrange the pig pen yet again. Meanwhile, Winnie Ben, the old donkey and former resident of the central farmyard, has been touring around all the outer paddocks, glades and valleys on Kiwi Farm, as this is how he remembers it hoping to evoke other animals' memories of grandeur that once was. He's bringing tales of nostalgia and a plan to restore Kiwi Farm to its former glory. Paddocks and pens have been filled to hear the charismatic old donkey speak, reminding them all that donkeys live a long time and no one's ever seen a dead donkey. The media sheep have been run off their trotters, trying to keep missives from the farmhouse in check and tensions around the events of the week at a low ebb, in the hope that not too many of the other animals notice yet another new rule has been painted on the back of the barn. This time around the control of feed and healing plants, vital to the health of all on Aotearoa Farm. They find themselves bleating hoarsely, encouraging the animals to attend a new film released featuring a fictional plastic piggy, as she is the new hope for young porcine kind. What are the chickens, you ask? Well, they've been busy coalescing in a variety of groups trying to pick out a plan to have a seat at the farmyard table. Many are still being maligned, picked off and roasted, but To Chippy's great dismay, they have proven more tenacious than he would have hoped. The sheep have sensed a coup afoot between the sly old Winnie Ben and some chickens. Let's wait to see how this unfolds. Want to find out more? Join me next week for more adventures on Aotearoa Farm here on Counterculture. And if you would like to hear previous instalments from Aotearoa Farm, you can do so on the replay page. Just go to realitycheck.radio.com slash replays, select Counterculture and look for Marie's monologue. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture. I am Marie, your host this morning. And now I have a very special guest. This is Rebecca Hampton. She has a story to tell, which I think is a cautionary tale for many parents. Good morning, Rebecca. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Um, Marie. Thank you so much for having me this morning. It means a lot to me. Tell us a little bit about your story that you have been uh, embarking on over the last few years. Yes, <clears throat> well, it has been quite a few years. So before 2017, my daughter was 16 years old. For most of her life, she was never insistent, persistent or consistent about anything. And she always knew that she was a girl. Academically, she went to Hamilton Girls High and she would always get Um, sort of average grades, sometimes A's, which we celebrated. But Hamilton Girls High School was brilliant to her and to our family. Uh, They recommended her to get an, just like services, 
to have her assessed for um, to see if she'd qualified for a reader writer for her exams because she was um, she was she was bright but just struggling in some areas. What was found was that she had some cognitive and processing speed, you know, writing and spelling. They were all a bit in the below average range or the low range. So she did qualify for that reader writer, which we were really thankful for. And that information I really valued to take to the school when we moved to Christchurch because I knew that they needed to know those things to get her over the line to finish her high school certificate. I was quite confident at the outset that that that's exactly what would happen. In 2018, we moved the school that we were zoned for Um, unfortunately, was Lincoln High School. I couldn't take her anywhere else. I visited the new dean for her year uh, just after a week after we started there, and um, I was assured that she was making friends and just settling in nicely. So it only took about a month after she started, maybe even less, that I got a phone call from the school's counsellor to say that she was suicidal, which was very strange to me. The counsellor was very apologetic on the phone. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. Your daughter didn't want me to phone you, but she loves you so much. She didn't want me to phone you, but I actually have to tell you that she's suicidal and she needs to see a doctor. We'd only just moved and the doctor didn't know us from a bar of soap. I was very perplexed. I took her the same day and I was a bit surprised that I had to stay out of the doctor's surgery. Sorry, Rebecca, how old was your daughter at this point? She was 17. Right. So, yeah, she came came out of the doctor's room and I put my head in the door and I said, is she? uh, It's so hard for me to believe it. Is she really? And the doctor kind of just laughed at me and said, no, she's fine. You've got nothing to worry about. And so I thought, well, what, what was all that about? And I, I turned to my daughter and I and I, and I said, what, what's going on? What, why, why did I get that call today? And she said, oh, mum, I didn't want her to phone you. It's, just, it's nothing. It, it, it was just something silly. I'm, I'm all right. And the doctor said I'm all right. And I said, and I thought, well, I know my daughter. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I, I just put it out of my mind and and we went we went on with life. But when it came to her birthday uh, time, she asked me if she could go to Armageddon and dress up as cosplay. And I had a background in theatre, so I, I wasn't like didn't bother me at all. Um, and I said, "Sure, honey, we can go and make your costume." So what what do you what would you like to go as? And she she said, "I I think I I really like Jack Frost. He's really cool." I said, "Okay, we can do that." We went to Spotlight and we picked out all of the, the the costume and she seemed really happy and she said on the, the ride on the way home, oh, mum, do you think we could get a binder for me because like to bind my chest with because it's going to look funny if because she, she, was, she was quite big. I said, yeah, that's all right. We can do that. And so I didn't think anything <laughs> untoward. This is me joining dots and tell me if I'm way mm. off base, but mm. do you believe you got that phone call from the counsellor pressing the suicide button in order to give your daughter an opportunity to go to the doctor in order to discuss a potential transition? I'm or sure I- that that's what was happening behind my back now, but at the time I was totally blindsided mm-hmm. and all of this was very well hidden by my daughter. She and I, I thought, had a, a fantastic 
close, loving bond. But a lot of this was just hidden. She was very good at hiding things from me. That in itself is quite concerning for parents because you think you know your child. Well, you do know your child, you, <laughs> but they can be doing things behind your back that you have no idea what's going on, mm. yeah, even so, if they're a good kid. Yeah. Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Grabbed your binder, went to Armageddon. She looked fabulous as Jack Frost, I'm sure. Well, well, actually, the, the thing is the binder came and she put it on and the, the costume stayed in the cupboard unmade and that made me twig. <laughs> and I thought, why why is she, like, constantly wearing this binder but the costume's not doing anything? started noticing that she wasn't coming out of her room she was on the phone a lot to these new her new friend group. I met the new friend group. They seemed a little bit different with the coloured hair and and piercings and stuff that you know she did. She just didn't get at girls high because they had a dress code. <laughs> I understand that the teenagers individuate, and and I was fine with them. Later, I found out that they identified as um, you know somewhere under the rainbow umbrella. And also uh, social justice ideas. And, you know, that's all fine, but they're, they're very young. And, you know, I think we've got to remember that they're very easily led and impressionable, a lot of these kids. And they don't know the full, the, you know, the full story of, of these issues. Yeah, so I, I pressed her and I, and I asked what was going on. Like, what was the change about? And, and I, I said, I, you know, are you doing drugs? these new friends of yours are they encouraging you to do things that that I wouldn't want you to do and and I said are you gay I do you think you're a lesbian and it was like no 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 nothing no no nothing like that and so so I said well what is it and I was like eventually I got out of her that she thought that she might be trans and I, I said well is that just like wearing baggy clothes and short hair is it's not a big deal and she said, no, that's not, no, it's not a big deal. I said, well, well, honey, just don't label yourself. Just enjoy being a teenager and don't put any labels on yourself when your prefrontal cortex hasn't, hasn't fully developed. I said, if you think that that's what you want to do later on, then something that you, mature adult you can decide. But right now, don't be going down that path because it's not healthy for you. You need to be more holistic in your thinking. And so I thought that that was the end of that, but I was wrong. <laughs> I didn't realise that her teachers were also encouraging this um, behind my back. And I, I noticed that a lot of, like when I was picking her up from friends' houses, they were calling her a male name. And I'd say to her, why are they calling you that? And she'd say, oh, it's just a nickname, mum, don't worry about it. It's, it's no big deal. And again, you know, trusting that we had that bond that that I knew her and, you know, and I do, I gave her the benefit of the doubt because as a mum <laughs> or as a parent, you want to believe the best in your kids, you know. You want to believe that they're actually being honest with you. There, there was something in my intuition that didn't sit. I felt like I was, I felt like, you know, my first husband, her dad was abusive and did a lot of things behind my back and I felt that same feeling like something was going on behind my back and I wanted to figure out what was going on 
So I started to research, what does it mean today when a girl says she's trans? (laughs) Because that's what we do, you know, and there wasn't a lot of information back in 2018 about these things. Um, I got a lot of the pro arguments and, and I did want to know what the pro arguments were. I noticed that in those pro argument arguments, they were they were kind of circular in their reasoning and very subjective and emotional. There wasn't really any logic behind it. Yeah, and, and a lot of the things just didn't, the worldviews, if you like, they they didn't make sense. That that led me to understanding the history as well of transgenderism, which led me to uh, learning about Alfred Kinsey and Harry Benjamin and New Zealand's John Money, Mm, Yes, Um, the the transsexual clinic that was set up in the 1960s and 70s for for mostly men, not not a lot of women, but mostly men back then. That was at John Hopkins University in America. And I came across Dr. Paul McHugh's work who closed down that clinic in the 1970s because the long-term outcomes had often been worse than the people who didn't do anything to medically transition. That was interesting to to learn that this had had actually all been done before Mm. and it was deemed to be a bad idea. And incidentally, the same long-term findings have been replicated in Sweden and they have also are now not doing any um, mm. affirmative care for for these for these kids. Certainly, there haven't been any trans identified youth suicides in Sweden for the past few years either. So that narrative is um, falling apart. Isn't that interesting? Because I spoke to Helen Joyce last week, and yeah. we talked about language. She she said the ideology now is so driven by language, the modern ideology. So trans of the 1960s, I think, is a completely different animal to trans of today. Oh, it is. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, back then it was male to female transitions. To mm-hmm. Today, it is very much predominantly female to male. Yeah. yeah. And we talked about the trans genocide. I just said to Helen, where are these bodies? I, I Yeah. Where are they? Yeah, exactly. It's, where are it's, they? It's very disingenuous. Yeah. So your daughter's year 13, I'm assuming, or is she year 12? Let's see. She was year 12 in 2018. Yeah, um, so year 12. So she's year 12 with her, uh, her, her funky donkey friends. Mm-hmm. Um, they're giving her a boy's name. The mm-hmm. teachers are lying behind your back and not letting mm-hmm. you know what's going on. So yep. she is, for argument's sake, um, Joe without an E at home and uh, Joe with an E at school. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. So where did things move on from there? Well, as I was finding out about the origins and, and you know, the, the potential dangers, I mean, I knew that hormones like hormone replacement therapy in women um, like we all found out in the 80s that that would lead to cancer. I knew that hormones, well, from what I understand, hormones are made of cholesterol, which if we put a, you know, a bunch of cholesterol in a woman's body, it's going to lead to heart disease. I knew those things. I didn't know <laughs> for sure because it was also experimental um, in 2018. There wasn't a lot of information and I did try and tell her those things that I was concerned that this experimental was not good for her long-term health. Mm. And could she please like just wait until she's a grown adult to just make these decisions? Because she 
you know, she, her feelings will change. Her feelings can change. Mm. So she was still in social transition at this stage. Yeah, so people yeah. uh, respecting and affirming her identity and the only physical thing going on was, was some binding. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. We had two small children. I had two small children with my, my second husband in the home and they absolutely idolised their big sister and they wanted to do everything that she was doing. And part of my argument was, please, can you think about, you know, being a role model to them and just continue to be the sister that they love? She didn't say much, but my authority as a parent, I hadn't realised had already been usurped by the friends, the teachers, the counsellors, the medical professionals. I wasn't heard as a, as a parent. I think by by May the following year, I got another call from the school counsellor to say that she was suicidal again and I was angry. I was really angry because I was doing everything. Like when you when you find out this stuff as a parent, it consumes your thoughts. You think about it constantly, and you you researching and you're and you're trying to like your heart's breaking. You're in anguish. You're trying to reach your child, and you feel like you're totally helpless. That there's nothing that you can say or do that's going to break through this delusion and show them reality like the truth about mm. how they're really what they're really doing to themselves so anyway I just thought okay so I'll use this opportunity with the psych nurse to maybe just have the opportunity to tell the psych nurse some of the backstory as to why I think as her mother she might be feeling the way she is because you know obviously with her father seeing you know growing up seeing her father freak me terribly couldn't have been good for her sense of self as a girl, fe- feeling vulnerable to that kind of thing from from her own dad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I tried to just give a little bit of background. And again, I was completely unheard, which made me even more distrustful of the medical establishment altogether. And I don't even like going to the doctor at Vesta times, but if I'm not going to be listened to, I feel like I'm just wasting my time and it and it makes me lose respect. It's a terrible thing that they've done to themselves, really. Mm. Eventually, I asked my daughter if I could go into a joint therapy session with her just to try to give the counsellor that she was seeing the same story, like just to try to, because I thought that a therapist had held a relationship between a parent and child of very high value for, for mental and emotional well-being. And so she agreed that I could come to a, a session. It was her last session with this woman. And I was asked to wait outside and then I'd be called in for it was a, it was an hour-long session. And I was sitting there for about 45 or 50 minutes, wondering when I was going to have the opportunity to speak. At the very end, I got called in and I sat down. And the therapist began to tell me that if I didn't refer to my daughter as my son, that she would kill herself. And I had to use male pronouns and a male name. And I was absolutely stunned. Mm. (laughs) I remember vividly, I turned and I looked at my daughter and she was white as a sheet. She was trembling and she would not look me in the eye. And I thought, why are you suddenly so terrified of me when I've been like loving you 
and we've had such a loving, caring relationship your whole life. It almost, like in hindsight, it almost felt like she was, like somebody else was controlling her. What you're describing sounds very much like someone that has been captured into a cult. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, in hindsight, yeah. But I looked at her and I said, Honey, I love you just the way you are. You're perfect just the way you are. You don't have to change anything. You're beautiful and we love you and we want you happy and whole just the way you are. And as I was saying these things, the therapist was coming over the top of me, policing my language, correcting the things that that she thought that I needed to say. And I got really angry with the therapist. And I I turned to the therapist and I said, don't you think that there are good reasons why she might be confused and feeling the way she is? Is it it not okay to ask these questions? And I went, railed at her. I went on and and eventually she just, she said, well, we've got ACC coming in now to give her, the next step will be to giving her testosterone and then um, double mastectomy surgeries if she wants to from ACC. Well, hold on just a second. ACC? Yeah. 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 Under what injury? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't, I have no idea. Through the school. So the school would have come in and if she'd done her final year, as it turns out, she dropped out of school because she was failing every, every subject. I had another phone call from um, the school uh, email actually after um, by September of 2018 to say that she was failing every subject and she'd need intervention and I was angry again like why didn't you use the information that I gave you in the first place to make sure that this wasn't going to happen because I spent a lot of money and investment in trying to get that edge services as professional opinion to get her the help that she needed to finish high school to have her high school certificate go on to do things that she could make something of her life. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's what we all do as parents to make sure that our kids are educated, that they get the education they need to go on to do whatever they want to do. I'm just going to go through and just Mm -hmm. tell me if I've gone off base, okay? So I'm just going to do a little bit of a summary for any listeners that are coming in now and thinking, what's she talking about? So I'm talking to Rebecca. So you moved from Hamilton, she was no signs of any anything untoward in Hamilton. Not at all. You, you moved to Christchurch. Now a move is up there with divorce and okay, it's number it's the number three stressor in a family. Moving yeah. is massively stressful. Yeah. So you're moving from Hamilton to Christchurch. Mm-hmm. You get settled into the local zoned co-educational college, Lincoln College. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I mean, let's face it, it's hard to settle anybody into a new school, even anybody into a new community, let alone a teenager into a new school and a teenage girl into a new school. So she goes into the new school. You think things are ticking along okay. You get a phone call from the counsellor saying, no, your daughter says she's suicidal. She needs to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. You go to the doctor. She's making up a story that she wants to go to an Armageddon needs a chest binder. We get the chest binder thinking that we're doing a bit of cosplay. I've got boys. One of them's done the Armageddon. I'm so there. I'm on the page with you so far, yeah. Rebecca. Yeah. And she has got now her new group of friends. It sounds like, unfortunately, she started at that new school, met some new people. And I mean, this is all sounding like a cult. 
Yeah. 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 It's pretty scary. You know, you've gone from a child who was achieving and needed extra support to achieve. Yeah. And again, I know exactly where you're coming from. Having done the learning support assessments for both my sons, I am all over that. So I know exactly what process you would have gone to and why you would have done it. Yeah. So she had everything there, all the tools in her toolbox. Mm -hmm. But instead of going and sort of doing what she's gotten in with this group of friends and all of a sudden that community has now started to fill her head with obviously taken those stresses and vulnerabilities and doubts and um, cemented something else in her mind. So she's dropped out at the end of year 12. Was Mm -hmm. she still at home at that point? Yes, she was. I don't know if her friends were telling her that she had to leave. I later found something that was written in her room that one of her friend's families had offered to take her in if she felt unsafe with me, which made me angry. I'd also found she'd done a a school book report of a book called I Am Jay by Chris Beam. And this was written by another transgender person about, I started reading some of the book and it was, it was pretty pornographic. And I thought, I didn't think that it was legal to put pornography in the hands of minors in the school library. It just felt like, what kind of world is this mm. now? The parents are not being told that this is the kind of depravity that their children have got to navigate without their knowledge. So she she was in touch with her dad in this time and I mean she was 18 she knew that she could do what she wanted. She did she said she didn't want to do her final year at school because she'd have failed everything. She wanted to go and and live with her dad for a while. Her dad was affirming so yeah, I and I knew there wasn't really a lot that I could say, so I had to just let her go. I didn't want to let her go. So where is she still with dad? She was with him for a while. She's not anymore. She got to Australia to to her dad and she made some friends again who I don't I don't know what, what you'd say. They just seem to all have the personality of being like a um, somewhere on the cluster B spectrum for mm-hmm. you know manipulation and she was easily led by them and she yeah. ended up moving out of uh, her dad's house to be with these new new friends who were yeah taking advantage of her really she ended up in huge debt and homeless in 2020 uh, I remember she phoned me in tears saying that she had to start testosterone and I said, well, no, you don't. You do. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. And she she couldn't really articulate to me why she believed that she had to do that. But later I found out that when she'd got to Australia, her father had legally changed her name everywhere. Her birth certificate, her passport, her bank account, everything had been legally changed. So maybe that was part of the reason why she felt like she she had to go through with it. I don't really know. She had a therapist there as well who uh, diagnosed her with functioning autism, which is not something that we we kind of knew. Well, we kind of knew about it, but there wasn't a lot known in the sort of 2000s about 
um, high-functioning autism in females. Just going to say, I've got a high-functioning autistic son. They're hard to, harder to diagnose, and girls are especially difficult to diagnose because they tend to naturally have better social skills, yeah. and that's one of the key indicators that they use for a diagnosis. So when you've actually have better skills in certain areas, it is it is quite difficult. And you know, gosh, now as a parent. Mm. You have probably done so much reading and you're probably thinking to yourself, when I look back down the tunnel, you know, how could I have not seen this? Yeah. (laughs) But I'm here to tell you, honestly, Rebecca, don't feel bad about that because when you're, I mean, as you said, you're a a parent, you're wanting to, to love your child. And I've worked a lot. I mean, the whole trans ideology for me has been quite new in terms of my learning around critical theory. So mm. I have come from it from a social justice standpoint. I've fallen foul of those who are very, very steeped in the cult. The trans ideology obviously is, is a part of that. And it's those ideologues. And you're right. It is a cult. And when you look back down the barrel of things, and unfortunately, you know, the the autism, something like 50% of all people that are trans identified currently in the new ideology have autism or some form of neurodevelopmental disorder yeah 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 that's as a parent of a child and that that I mean I'm it's pretty terrifying yeah Yeah. and and it's really neglectful of these medical professionals to treat somebody with uh, high functioning autism who is you know on this on the spectrum of autism who band-aid them like that and you know put a new identity on them because it's it's fake Mm. and it will end badly these kids will grow up and realize what a terrible thing has happened to them and there are some detransitioners who are speaking up right now it's just criminal really what's what they're they're being put through they make it look so benign they make Mm. it look so harmless in the beginning but it, it really does follow that I'm noticing it's really following that abusive pattern, you know, being asked to buy into a shared fantasy, not being able to ask questions that are, you know, critically thinking questions, and then, you know, getting getting isolated from the people in their lives who would obviously have their best interest at heart. And, you know, that whole projection of accusing them accusing others of what they themselves are actually doing yeah it's that there's just so many Mm. parallels that you see with you know the gaslighting and the just the you know the estrangement I actually am part of an online group called concerned parents for trans identified teens and and youth and I was surprised that a lot of those parents that they they gave them everything. They affirmed them. They gave them everything. They're still now experiencing their children deciding to have nothing to do with their parents at all. They completely cut them out, estranged from them for reasons that the parents just don't understand because they've given them everything. I think it's because a parent is so intrinsically connected to the, the truth? truth about identity. Yeah. 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 Because it's constant reminder of who you actually are. And there must be some anger about that. 
in in their psyche that they're trying to fight against. And I mean, what what can a parent do? This this doesn't just like affect parents; it affects entire families, mm. the grandparents, the aunties, the uncles, the cousins, everybody. I wonder too. The reason they cut parents off is because deep down, they realize that there are doubts. There. Yes, yes. There are doubts. So by visiting their parents or visiting their family, what you're then doing is casting a wee light into those dark corners of where those doubts actually lie. And mm. when you're in the ideology, it is doctrinal. Questions, yeah. you, you're not there to ask questions. You're yeah. there to do the work. Yeah. You do yeah. the reading. It's yeah. doctrinal. It's it's very Marxist in its thinking. It has yes. their their own yes. pillars of knowledge and their own gods that they create yeah. within exactly. that space. And Gnostic. Yeah. It is very, very Gnostic. And so these kids are, and of course, especially if you have autism of any form, but especially yeah. high-functioning autism, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest cravings that you have is the desire to fit in. Because of often, often you've had feelings yeah. your entire teenage life that you just, you know, I mean, that's why the symbol for autism is a jigsaw puzzle piece, because sometimes you're that puzzle piece that never quite fits properly. Yeah. And yeah. so when all of a sudden you're finding a group of people, and I can see why it is so attractive for these kids, this group of people that bring you into the fold, they affirm you, they yeah. nourish you, they Love feed them. your ego totally, yeah. Yeah. They, they're telling you that you're the most beautiful thing in the world and that you can do this and you can get in touch with your feelings and all of these things, the endorphins <laughs> are rolling and it is exactly like a cult. And it's not just in trans ideology, it's also the same in social justice, it's the same in and to a greater or lesser extent for those that are very heavy in um, critical race theory, there's this massive amount of affirmation that goes around the identity that you have chosen. So, yeah. you know, as a parent, the difficulty, I mean, sitting here, my heart breaking six ways to Sunday for you. I really am yeah. because yeah. I would have done exactly everything that you would have done. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. I'm sitting there yeah. thinking, yep, tick, I would have done that. Yep, I would yeah. have done that too. And you think to yourself, how have I failed? But you have to realise you haven't failed. Yes, it's very yeah. hard. I've, I've found that Dr. James Lindsay has been very helpful to me as a parent yeah. to understand exactly the roots of where all this is coming from. I mean, he's a bit hard to hear, like listen to. Like sometimes you've got to listen to him three times to understand what he said. I've actually met James a couple of times digitally and he's uh, he's very wordy. He's yes. very, very wordy, but he's got a brain the size of an absolute planet. <laughs> and so James Lindsay, who we're referring to, he uh, wrote Cynical Theories uh, with Helen Pluckrose, which sort of explains all of the critical theory ideology yeah. as a whole. Um, I'm halfway through race Marxism at the moment. I had to take a break because she's a bit chilly. He's also written um, How to Have Impossible Conversations with Peter Boghossian, uh, which is another, actually, that's an earlier book. I think that came out around 2018. That one's quite a good one. And it talks about how to have these sorts of conversations with people that sit within, with very, very firm and solid ideas. So how to open people up and actually create a discourse, mm. which of course is an art these days. Um, it is. is becoming rarer. An art I'm not so. very good at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing great. So I guess now, so she's still in Australia? 
She is. She's she's ended up working for a telephone uh, company, so she doesn't have to go anywhere, apparently. I keep reaching out to her with messages of love and, you know, funny memes and jokes. and But unfortunately, I haven't had any um, contact back from her for nearly a year, which has been one of the hardest things any parent has to deal with is that estrangement that you don't quite understand. Today, I, I mean, obviously, I keep trying to learn and I keep fighting. I've noticed that um, with some of Helen Horton's work in bringing light to what Inside Out is teaching our kids in schools and how it's kind of similar to what online sex traffickers are looking for, for like kids to you know normalise that behaviour. You know, just connecting those dots is really a reason for, I think, a lot of parents to just have the courage to stand up and say this is not not happening on our watch, not to our kids. Our kids are not for sale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, the work has now been done. I mean, they closed the yeah. Tavistock Clinic in the UK. The thing that disturbs me the most in this country is we seem to be last at everything. I know. <laughs> the difficulty is it is the work that you're doing. It's the support that you're giving other parents. It's it's having to be the, you know, probably deep down that, you're going to be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff for your daughter at some point. Absolutely. And you you just hope like hell that you're able to do the CPR and, and, and bring her back around. You know, she's still very, very young and it is tough, isn't it? There's a parent waiting, your heart's just continually there. And, and also you're obviously parenting two younger children as well at home. And yeah, yeah, we, we, we cottoned on pretty quick that the, public school systems were going to do exactly the same thing as Lincoln High. And um, by the time they got to high school, it would probably be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pulled them out of public school and we now have them in in a, a special character school, but even special character schools are not 100% safe. So you've got to be very vigilant about uh, keeping your kids safe online, teaching them about um, predatory behaviour, like the love bombing, like... Mm-hmm. Um, the isolation, the triangulation, that, that sort of behaviour that won't want your kids to um, experience or if they do see people like that, that they know that, you know, that's a bullying tactic and mm. to stand up for those things. Especially with girls too, you know, this yeah. is a social contagion. I really yeah. believe for girls at your oh, daughter's age, yeah. it is a complete social contagion. I don't know about you, but back in our day, it was being a goth. There was that phase that you were either going to be Patty, Patty Smith or Robert Smith, or, or you're running around. If you're really, you know, out there, you're a bit, you're still a bit Sid vicious. And parents sitting there looking at the super glue and looking at the black eyeliner and fingernails, thinking, "Oh gosh, are they going to grow out of that?" Um, before you panic, <laughs> listeners, that wasn't me, but I did hang around with goths. I was the square in the in the goth hole. But every single one of those people that I knew all have. They yeah. face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Through it. you express yourself. You you find yeah. a journey that you're on, and and this is different. This is making physical uh, changes. Physical that can... physical changes that are going to stay with them. That they're not reversible. Early on, they they used to say, "Oh, that's totally reversible," but actually, they're not reversible at all. Um, especially for little boys, particularly puberty blockers is probably yeah. the worst thing you can do to a little boy. 
the sexual function is just not going to be there for them in their older Adult years, lives. which is it's, it's just mm. so, it's robbery. It's criminal what they're doing to these little boys and little girls. You mentioned some groups. So if, if I've got a pair, if I've got parents that are listening to this now, yeah, thinking, yeah. Oh god, oh no, yes. I'm, Rebecca is telling my story. I've got <laughs> that story at home, and they're not plugged in to other support networks. Where are some of those support networks? Where have you found support? Well, there's a lot. There's one here in New Zealand. That I can't quite remember the name of, but I could possibly get back to you about it. Yeah. For your listeners, there's the, the one that I, I use the most is Concerned Parents for Transgender Youth and Teens. That's a Facebook group, really easy to find. Family First with Bob and Cross Green. Family, He's been family First, yep, absolutely Family First. For me, going about, I'm sort of a, a learner in as much as I, I like to hear what people have Found, I've found that Genspect, that's evidence-based care, has been very interesting, Genspect. I think that's Stella O'Malley. She's brilliant. And actually, I interviewed Mark Kuno from Resist Gender Education. She's also very, very good in the New Zealand space oh, around that's, education. Yeah, that's the one I was trying to think of. Resist oh, there you go. Education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark's awesome. Yeah. That, so those, those are a great start. There's also people like overseas, like Scott Nugent. Mm. who is biological female and uh, he's got trayvoices.com. Yes, um, and, it, um, and I interviewed Scott right back at the very beginning when I started here. So if you go yeah. back to my replace page all the way back to April, I think it was around April 19th, somewhere in there, I interviewed Scott. So definitely, yeah, Trey mm-hmm. Voices and he's he is prolific in the amount of work and the time that he's putting into this is incredible, yeah. Yeah, my heart just goes out. What he's actually been through, your heart breaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Bill Ward Chris is another one too. He's a Canadian. He's done a lot of work. Definitely do that research. Keep in touch because I know that we're in, in touch um, behind the scenes. So keep in touch uh, with anything that, uh, with how things go. We'd love to stay in touch. I've got Helen Horton uh, coming back here very, very soon. I know you're in touch with her. And Helen's been doing a huge amount of work. Helen Horton is the leader of the New Conservative Party. And this is her particular area of interest, being an educator. And Helen is an incredible resource around this. And I think it's just keeping that vigilance, isn't it? It is. We, we've got to be. We've got to be. Because... Um, yeah, you can't be afraid of being called a name that's that's not true. I mean, the the arguments that they put forward of of being haters is there's nothing in it. We, we don't hate them. I, I've got nothing, but yeah, I'd like to say I've got for the trans people um, out there that might be listening. I love you. I've got huge compassion for you. Whatever pain is causing you to feel like you can't be who you were born as that pain is real and valid and it deserves respect but for you to actually say to us that we have to violate our own conscience in our words that's a whole different level of toxic that that nobody should want to put on anybody thank you so much rebecca this has been rebecca hampton Uh, we've been talking about her and the transition of her daughter 
And if you've got any questions whatsoever around that, inbox at realitycheck.radio, inbox at realitycheck.radio, or if you've got questions for Rebecca, uh, we can pass those on to her via that, or do text us to 2057. Hey, thank you, for Rebecca, for your time. I do appreciate it very, very much. And don't Thank disappear. you so much. No, thank you so much. And don't disappear, everybody. More still here to come with Counterculture with Marie here on RCR. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're with Marie. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. If you want to reference interviews already done on this topic with Rebecca, please go back to realitycheck.radio backslash replays. Select Counterculture and listen to both my interviews with Helen Houghton and also Marg Kuno from Resist Gender Education, one of the resources that was recited by Rebecca in this interview. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture. I am Marie, and my next guest is author, advocate, and survivor, Gloria Masters, uh, writer of An Angel's Wing, My Flight from Trauma to Grace. Welcome back to uh, RCR. I know our lovely Natalie spoke to you. You have got a really fascinating story, and I just wanted to go into that further, and then I wanted to talk about some of the work that you've been doing very, very recently. So good morning and welcome, Gloria. Hi, Marie. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for hosting me. And um, I'm beyond grateful because although my story is unusual, I've managed to emerge through it and am able to give back and create things that help support other survivors and also protect our children. So very excited to be here today. Mm. So how did it all start with you? Because you've said this, it is unusual. So walk us through your journey. Yes. So look, I was born into a family where child sex trafficking uh, was known and generational. For the first 16 years of my life at the hands and initiation of my father, I was sex trafficked 
So I was abused by him, his extended family and friends, and then trained by my grandmother, his mother, to be the best child sex worker I could be. I was leased to gangs here in New Zealand, Freemasons. I experienced satanic ritual abuse. I uh, suffered through many, many child sexual abuse material information, including videos, over 100 of those, and many photographs being taken. They were very big earners for my father. I was leased out of a nightclub in K Road in the top floor as an 11-year-old. I was chained to a bed up there, and their men and women would pay to have my services. The reality was there wasn't a living person or adult around me who was interested enough or cared enough to see the distress I was in. My mother was complicit in that she was a very severe wounded narcissist. So I wasn't actually a person or a child to her. And in fact, Marie, if I could sum it up in one sentence, to her, I was always just in the way. Mm. So my father had open season, so he exploited, manipulated, used and abused me for all of those years and made a great deal of money. Mm. So so it's really a complete dehumanisation. I mean, you were relegated to, to that of a product, not a person. Thank you. Excellent point. To my parents, I was an object. So when you think about it, if I'm considered to be on the level of a pen, a pen is not asked how it is, nurtured, loved, fed, or considered. A pen is just picked up and used when needed. So to my parents, I was not a beautiful child, which all children are. I was an object, and so that meant I wasn't seen, and you can imagine the trauma once I emerged through those 16 years. So how did you get out? I mean, as you said, through those 16 years, when for you were you able to escape from this? I was able to escape the day I turned 16 because my parents had separated and then divorced when I turned 11. And the day I turned 16, I could choose who to live with and I had autonomy over where I was. So I chose never to see my father again and I never willingly did. So you went so you went off with your mum? And, and I mean, it sounds like she wasn't exactly, uh, as you mentioned before, not the, the most caring type. So I'm picking that you would have been a pretty independent minor at that point. Well, they when they separated at 11, Marie, I was left with my father. Mm. So I was left with my father and brother. And although the first, the prior 11 years had been horrendous, as I've described, this new nightmare was to take a completely different turn because Mm. there was no adult female in the house anymore. Yeah. Did 
Did your father ever come to justice over this? No, I launched a, took it to the police in my 30s and they um, they had seven detectives on the case and they were at pains to point out because uh, family and extended family, of course, denied anything. I was, uh, I didn't, they didn't have the burden of proof and they were at pains to point out it was not that they didn't believe, mm. it was just the burden of proof was not met. So you, yeah, it sounds like that you may not have been the first person that they have had to deal with in this situation. Mm. I spoke with Denise Ritchie a few weeks ago and uh, we talked about New, the New Zealand landscape since the decriminalisation of prostitution. So the thing that concerns me now is that your situation would have happened prior to that decriminalisation. But since that decriminalisation, have things in this country improved in regards to child sex trafficking and sex work or gotten worse from what you've been able to see with your advocacy work? I would say generically every every act of child sex trafficking is a crime scene. There is no minimising or or kind of sanitising that. There are no conditions established for children because apparently it doesn't happen here. But the reality, as we know, and Miriam Akamo did an expose on this five weeks ago on Sunday on human slavery and trafficking, including child sex trafficking. This is beyond what anyone can imagine. Why? Because it's the biggest global earner. It's overtaken the drug trade, uh, the UN site, as being the biggest earner globally. So this this ain't going nowhere. We haven't seen anything yet, Marie. Mm. We've got online grooming of children. We've got sextortion of children through online, through laptops, games, etc. There's uh, there's a whole lot coming, and we need to prepare for that. So, in answer to your question, I would hope that that decriminalisation made a difference for the beautiful sex workers out there who are just doing their job. But I don't know because I, I'm i not in that, in that space. space. Mm. So I, I don't want to say, and uh, but I, I, wouldn't, I would hope so, but I don't know. As for children, people should just be locked up. Mm. So what are the sort of numbers? Because uh, unfortunately, New Zealand has a tendency when it comes to violence against children, whether it be sexual or domestic violence, to be not good on the league tables. Where are we sitting currently? Well, Help New Zealand released to a group called Rioza who walked the length and breadth of New Zealand last year highlighting the issue and Help gave the stats, which were then up to one in three girls by the time they turn 16, will have been sexually abused in our country, one in three. By the time our boys have turned 16, up to one in four to six boys will have been. But the police are at pains to point out it's more likely that it's one in four. Uh, So our stats are through the roof. We are among the world leaders in this. Um, This is not often reported for various reasons. But where's the noise, Marie? Mm. The billboards, where is the outcry? Where is the 
the action around this. We don't even have in our country um, a law that states if you are aware of child sexual abuse, you need to report it. That is not even it's not even here in New Zealand. It's just come into the UK. Uh, you will be charged and prosecuted if you do not report a known child sexual abuse incident. Mm. So it's a multifaceted problem, I suspect, between children who really unaware of what's going on and if their abusers are within their family or a trusted person, I'm assuming that that first point of contact is overrepresented by that group. Over 93% of cases of child sexual abuse are through people known to the child and the family. So let's think about that for a moment. The 7% remaining are the ones who will take a child off the street or find a way to grab them. But if if 93% are known to the child and family, Houston, we've got a problem. Mm. And that also too dictates an element of trust. So then that means that the child has an element of trust, that trust gets broken. So how does how does a child then communicate something that's happened to them that they're trying to process with people around them that they thought they could trust? but they now no longer can. I mean, I see that it has been a huge issue. Well, and gosh, really great questions. Thank you so much because this is going to help inform so many amazing parents and caregivers out there. The, for children, it's multi-layered and complex. So for some children, we know that most children will not voluntarily say, this is happening to me or he's abused me or she's abused me. Because usually what happens is they've been groomed. And by that I mean they've either been groomed and bribed or groomed and manipulated. Either way, the child has no power, the child has no real voice, and the perpetrator is skilled enough to probably have groomed the parents as well. And this is where we need to sit up because parents are being groomed Uh, to think this person is a safe, trusted adult, and they're clearly not. So part of how I'm addressing this in our beautiful country and across the world is I released a Global Awareness Day, June 16, with my charity called Handing the Shame Back. That's what survivors do when we speak. And part of that, Marie, is a global hand signal for children to use if they're being abused and not safe. Mm. And that hand signal is an open palm facing outwards, thumb across the palm, fingers down across the palm. That in itself means so that that's two-layered. One, children understanding that hand signal, but also adults. The adults that are able to provide help need to understand what those signals are. I heard an interview that you have done just recently, but how many other outlets, how many other People surely should be taking that information and running running with it. Are you getting the message out there or are you being stonewalled? Is this a too tricky a subject to discuss? I think you heard the interview I did on News Talk ZB. I did. I'm a little kind of surprised that New Zealand are picking this up and and we're not everywhere with it because it's about our children and grandchildren. This simple sign is a tool children can use because, as I said, children don't speak, but they show us through their behavior and body language. All the time, they're telling us a story, yeah? Mm -hmm. We have to learn to read it. 
Um, what ha- what happens is over in America and Australia, they love it. They love me. They're so grateful. New Zealand must be so proud of you. How fantastic! Thank you so much. Yeah, and down here, crickets. Do you think now that the the film has come out in the United States? Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom in the United States. I know that there is some petitioning to get the film screened in this country, and I really do hope we do. Uh, The film stars Jim Haverzell. There was a Mel Gibson connection there as well. I think he has been helping. Was he a producer or is he? Funding and helping with the production, I think. So this production is packing out theatres in the United States. But again, they're seeing a level of censorship over there. It's like, oh, no, we can't talk about this in polite society. And it's actually been an underground movement through social media and communities and alternative media such as this that are packing the theatres out there. I think as it's about to launch in Australia or may have just launched there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, your awareness around that film? Certainly. So I've been fortunate to get a copy. I have been asked by people in New Zealand that when it lands, could I please perhaps talk in front of the theatre group or or crowds who arrive, simply because I'm a survivor of child sex trafficking, so I've got some idea of what that experience is like. The film itself is over five years old. That's how long it's taken them to fight their way to being able to release it. It's out there. It focuses on children that have been taken from their homes and uh, sold into pedophile rings. The point is this, and I just want to make this distinction. I'm sure Operation Underground Railroad are fully aware of the amount of children that are being uh, trafficked from their own homes or through their own families or people associated but the film doesn't show that. So I'm just here to say there's quite a big uh, percentage of children in our country today being trafficked, and we know Maria Makamo exposed that. We know that there's not a lot happening as prevention in that space. So, Marie, I just can't sit back. I had to provide a hand signal, and I'm also launching and releasing my latest book in October this year, which I think you'll love. I'm going to show you the image of this, and it's called Keeping Children Safe, a roadmap for teachers, parents, and others. And I think the reason we need that is because I think the point is parents, teachers, and others are stuck. And so what that means is that we don't actually have a a situation where where they can be resourced or or helped and parents don't know what what to do. Mm. Just so we're really clear, for the amazing parents out there, you know, they're doing their absolute best with what they do know. Mm. And for the safe ones and the beautiful caring adults around us, we know that they will do anything to protect. The reality being that we also we also need to not just resource them, but resource the children as well. And yeah. so that's what the, the book is. I, I just feel we need to provide people with this information. And if they don't have it, they can't act. And mm. that's 
that's the real concern as far as I'm concerned. So this is one of the questions that I've got, and feel free not to to, to dive into this. Sure. But if you're saying one in three girls have experienced sexual abuse, the police, they think it's one in four to one in six boys. Yeah. Why then is there not more resourcing, education and awareness in our high schools and the government and the Ministry of Education engaging with groups to educate teens and tweens of the dangers and the signals and the things that they can do if they fall into this, as opposed to the millions and millions of dollars that get spent on identitarianism in terms of homosexuality, bisexuality, and transition, which by their own admission is only a very small percentage of children. To me, this is this is upside down world. And again, I would have thought that the children that identify in those categories would be at a much higher risk again of child sex abuse. I agree. I agree with you. I agree with you, Marie. I, But I also see, because I have had conversations with the police about this, they do do things. They have a program called, just trying to think of what it is, but they, they go into schools and they run programs with different levels. And part of that is around child sexual abuse. So they are trying to do something. You know, just as a survivor myself at school, uh, when back in those days there was nothing like this. But the point being, there just needs to be, we can't over uh, resource parents, caregivers, adults, and children. And I think that's where I'm I'm kind of thinking, well, if uh, we've I've got to do something. Mm. So here's the book cover. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Uh, the book cover is great. It's got the the icons. Uh, so if you ever are a person who is having to use navigation and Google Maps or anything like that, there is a little red arrow icon with a circle in the middle, and it is essentially showing two points between one point and another using that icon and and a line on how to travel to get there. So it, no, it is it is utterly fantastic. So that book's out in October. There have been some people doing some work in the space, and I think very very slowly some information is coming through. I know I've been following a little bit Maggie Oliver in the United Kingdom. Uh, yes. She's yeah, posted her. Uh, I've, we've had a panel discussion, including her, which yeah. I've run with her and Annika Lucas and Sean Atwood. Yep, know her. And well. She's so for the listeners. Uh, Maggie is a. I think she's retired now. She was a serving police officer. And she has been working tirelessly, especially to highlight the sexual grooming gangs, particularly within the Pakistani Bangladeshi communities, predominantly Islamic foundation, because culturally this is more accepted, whereas, of course, in a Western context, it should not be accepted at all. Uh, so she's been doing a lot of work, but she's hitting brick walls as well. I mean, she's hitting the brick wall that she can't expose this uh, with the cultural and religious basis that it is because therefore she's been racist. The blocks that are put in the way, to me, we have three specific groups. We have the children who are not safe. We have the abusers who are thrilled that the silence is there, but we equally have the gatekeepers and enablers, and let me just qualify. 
the gatekeepers are the ones that allow or disallow access to the pedophiles. So things are blocked, things like, but you're being racist, or who are you, Gloria Masters, to design this sign and release this? Like, what? Who? Almost who gave you permission? Then there are the enablers who know something's wrong. It might be the partner who thinks he's hanging around the, the, that kid a bit much, or why is my child withdrawing from her a lot and Nick just wants to cling to me whenever she's in the room because that's the other thing, up to 30% of pedophiles are women. But that's never talked about either. But the point is, because we've got three disparate groups and the silence is deafening, I call this a silent endemic, what happens is the only group it serves, of course, are the pedophiles. It's on us as the adults in a first world country or a caring society to actually protect our children and do everything we can. The problem is people, good people like you, can find it really uncomfortable to talk about. And, hey, I get that. It's not a nice topic. I'm not saying you do, Marie, but I'm using you as an example. It's uncomfortable for people and they don't know what to do with it. And there's also the NIMBY, not in my backyard. It's not happening to my kids. It's not happening to anyone I know or care about. Therefore, it's nothing to do with me. So there's a bit of distancing. Equally, you'll get people that will try and shut survivors like me down, which is, oh, do you still need to talk about that? Isn't don't you have other things happening in your life? Uh, do, you know, have you not been able to move on? <laughs> Which is another way of shutting this down. And then, of course, you get the pedophiles rubbing their hands with glee. This is highly typical. And there's a little myth out there that it only happens in lower socioeconomic or the specific groups or cultures within societies. No, it's everywhere. It's across Mm. all levels. On the show, I talk a little bit about culture and critical social justice and critical theory, often known as wokeism. One of the things within the ideology is a openness and acceptance around people's identity and state of being and how they identify and of course the current battleground is gender as opposed to biological sex tied up in all of this is the reclassification and the renaming of absolutely everything they like to what i call almost dehumanize and tone down elements of our society to make them more palatable and one of those is pedophilia and pedophiles which are now supposed to be referred to as minor attracted persons. What are your thoughts around this, Gloria? My heart sinks as I hear you say that. Again, it's another way to minimise or glamorise or sanitise people to accepting that pedophilia is okay. So one of the things I think we need to be aware of is that society is being groomed as well. So people think it's just children. No, it's not. It's us in society because the more that people talk about this type of issue, uh, the more people hear it, the more they start to think it maybe it is okay. No, it is not. Repeat after me, it is not. These are children. Children do not have the cognitive ability 
to stand up to an adult. And I don't care whether they are four or 16 years of age, they do not have that within them because conditioning suggests a child will respect the adult. This term needs to be crucified for what it is. It's giving permission for evil to exist. And then I just want to clarify something or point something out. Marie, there's a little myth out there that this pedophilia and this child sex trafficking and sexual abuse only began 10 years ago. You know what? I've been around for a long time and it was happening in the 60s and 70s. This has been going on since time began. And I think it's time that children should be protected and that the adults who are tasked with protecting them should be respected to lead the charge. Ask me who the experts on children are. Who are the experts on children, Gloria? The parents. The parents. Stop listening to people that tell you otherwise. You are the expert. You know your child. You know by the turn of a head or a tone of voice whether something's up or not. Listen to your instinct. You are the parent. Mm. We need to stop giving permission to be conditioned by outside of us. But what I do is I tend to pan back and ask myself, who does it serve to have pedophiles renamed as minor attracted persons? The pedophiles. Wrong. So I think we need to just always take Mm. a step back and ask the question, who is this serving? Uh, because it's not serving the children. So it's interesting what you say around parents, because as a parent, and also as a parent in a traditional nuclear family unit, which I feel is becoming an endangered species these days, we are getting stymied by the organisations that we entrust our children to. The education system, for example, as one example, is... The grooming you talked about, I think, is uh, the governments, and especially in the last six years, have groomed parents that, you know, you take your child uh, once they're of school age to this place where we have to have a trust in the system, built into the system, that our child will be safe between nine and three. And I think physically that child is safe in that space between nine and three. And I am sure for many children who are in a dangerous place outside of school, that is their safe place, is that school between nine and three. But those within that system are now with this ideology, those teachers traditionally would have been the ones that, particularly if the abuse was perpetrated by the parents or enabled by the parents, they would have been that that alarm bell, wouldn't they? They would have been the canary in the coal mine who would have rung the bell and said, mm, I think we, we might need to dig deeper here. Is that still happening? Or are they now with all the new identification and, as you said, the, the change in attitudes, are, they, are these kids not even able to go into that safe space and environment and express themselves? And if they do, it just gets sort of diluted away into the milieu of what is now current popular culture? Look, to be honest, 
it's so incredibly confusing for the adults. I can't even begin to imagine what the impact is on children. Mm. I know children are very confused. I spoke to a teacher friend of mine the other day who said she had an eight-year-old boy and he didn't know which toilet to go into. The point is, again, all we do, Marie, is stand back and ask, who is the serving? Because mm. I think for children, it's just so confusing. Yeah, I, I kind of trust what children do and what they, how they behave. If they are gender diverse as a parent, you will know that. You will not need to inform your child of that. You will see that. You will sense that. You, you are the expert. You will, you will know this child is not identifying or or seeing himself as a boy. Mm. It's okay because as the parent, you'll do what you can to help smooth the path. I think we have to uh, allow parents to be parents. Mm. But I want to raise something that you've alluded to without realising, and thank you, these are such good questions. Parents don't know what to do, and so they will follow the status quo. And I think what's happening, and it's across the board, is they're becoming desensitised to things that they need to be highly sensitised to, one being the minor attracted persons, because, again, it doesn't serve anybody. But I think the other um, thing I, I want to raise is that in our country, Pedophiles who are convicted, when once released, can change their names legally by Depop. And also, well, not only their names, they can also change their sex identification now too, as of last month. Yes. So the problem for me is this is a red flag because we know in the UK until, well, it's still not law there, some pedophiles have changed their names 10 times in 10 years. Just be aware that the whole gatekeeping and enabling of all of this is highly prevalent. But the point I want to bring you back to, not to confuse you, I hope I'm not, is this. We have to be mindful as well that not every parent is a good parent. As in my case, I was abused and sold by my parents. So Mm -hmm. that's the the calibre of them, not... I guess what I'm saying is for children that that maybe start using the hand signal or start trying to disclose to a safe adult at school, which is where I was safe as a kid, we need to resource teachers as well because they may have an instinct that this child is fearful around a parent or it could be that that parent is an abuser. So there's a whole lot of layers around this, Marie, and unfortunately... Child sexual abuse and incest is huge. So, yeah, there's multi-layers and uh, we need a big noise around it. And the difficulty too is that there are so many drivers of this. There is the the poverty and social drivers. Yes. There is the familial drivers in terms of, you know, are they from a core, stable, traditional family background or is it a broken family? Then you throw on the ethnic and cultural elements with this, which there are societies where things are more permissive than others. And that's even before you get into the grooming with social media and the, and I mean, the over-sexualization of children in film and television now. And I don't consider myself prudish, 
But even I'm kind of like, whoa, whoa. And I look at the the ratings, you know, and I think to myself, hmm, the censors seem to be more permissive on sexualized content when it comes to applying a rating than what they are with, say, violence or drug use or even cigarette smoking. Why is it, you know, why is it we have elements like, say, cigarette, actually cigarette cessation, let's use this, because I, again, with Denise, this came up, she talked about the five different barriers to stop demand for people within the sex trade and to, to break that down. But in terms of child trafficking, those things would be the same. We put all this effort into smoking cessation, and yet with one in three girls being sexually abused before the the age of 16, what are we spending and what are we putting into place for those girls? It it horrifies me. I don't know, I wish I could do more. But we, we need to resource our parents, caregivers, teachers, everyone. Mm. In my uh, little way, I'm just I'm thinking a hand signal would have worked. If, if I'd had a hand signal as a kid, could have saved me, Marie. Mm. You see, yeah. and this is what we need to stop expecting children to talk. That is an adult construct. Children don't talk. They play. They show us their behaviour. So I think we've we've got to be educated. We've got to be informed. And it would be great if if New Zealand would pick this up. And it, to me, it should be across the harbour bridge. It should be on every billboard. There should be, um, you know, a lot going on with this. Talking about Disney movies, there is not a Disney movie or a musical release that does not have a young child gyrating or or made to look sexually appealing, that that is also us being groomed. Mm. Uh, So I think, you know, come on, at what point? Um, And the thing that upsets me about that, there was a Netflix movie, and for the life of me, I can't think of the name of it, but it was was around cheerleaders, and these girls were around sort of 10, 11 years old, and it was quite uh, lots of highly sexualized dancing in it. And that came out, a few years back, and there was a, a cry in the United States around that. The other side of the political aisle just shut that down straight away and said, "Oh, it's the conservative, it's those conservative Christians complaining again." Now I might be an old fuddy duddy and a bit conservative, but I'm I'm not a Christian, and I have sons. But even I saw excerpts of that film, and I thought to myself, "Ooh, you know, that's creepy." Yep. Yeah. It was creepy. You mentioned it before about the enablers and the gatekeepers. That's the difficulty. I don't know about you, but I feel the last six years, our government have both been enablers and gatekeepers on issues such as this, because the, I, I feel like they are literally killing this country with hashtag be kindness. They're killing it with be kindness. Be kind. You can't, no, we can't talk about this because it's, we need to be kind. Oh, we can't, yeah, oh no, that will upset the monotractive persons. We need to be kind. What about the children? No, they're pedophiles. They're pedophiles. If we don't, we say, we say we care about the children. Do we? Do we? Mm. You know, I, I presented to a group of Rotarians recently. But it was was actually lovely, Marie. I had 85-year-olds doing the hand signal, repeating mm. after me. And actually it was due to them that I got on News Talk ZB. So even though it was three and a half minutes or whatever, the point is mm. they were supportive. And I think we just need to spread the word. Yeah. 
Yeah. You say you care about children. My response is share the hand signal. Yeah. Show us. Do it. So we're going to make sure that we get all of Gloria's details. I'm talking with Gloria Masters, author and advocate for children, particularly those in child abuse situations. What are some of the things, just quickly before we wind up, what are some of the things, one is getting that hand signal out there, but if you're a parent, as a parent, you are concerned about potentially maybe another child in this fear, where can those parents go to potentially help that child, particularly if the family situation that child is in is not so. Yeah, so look, there's wraparound services. There are some good police out there, some detectives in the child protection unit uh, who are happy to help. There are also people within the medical profession. I'd certainly be talking to a doctor initially because they have a duty of care. You see, once you go to a, a hub, they have a duty of care to get all other professionals in on the case. And then finally, if you're not sure what to do as a parent, talk ring helpline or ring help. And they are our Auckland-based provider for child sexual abuse. If you ring them, they've got an 0800 number or safe to talk. They will be able to provide some resource and support. Um, we'll, I'll get all those details of Gloria and we will have them with our inbox team if anyone wants to be able to get hold of those. Yeah, I just wanted to just say I've written a couple of books that may support adult survivors because, again, in our country, the up to one in three, there's a, over a million walking around with this as a damaged aspect and they are in the shadows, and partly why handing the shame back has been established is so that they have a safe haven and a place to be. So I've just published this morning a Lake Alice interview with Dilworth, run by me on my YouTube channel, to help expose what's going on and ways to get resource and support. And that YouTube channel is just under Gloria Masters? everything's handing the shame back handing the shame back there we go so youtube handing the shame back website for books and speaking and coaching events gloriamasters.com excellent the film you mentioned earlier because i know that that's potentially one of the things we're going to get questions on you mentioned the film before sound of freedom are there moves afoot gloria for you to actually have an event to screen that film well, we're looking at that. There's a group of us, Nats, uh, Natalie, who interviewed Welsh. Yeah. is part of a group that's trying to get that into the country and have me talk at that screening. So I think it would be really important that as soon as we have, there's a change org uh, petition going around online to try and get that into our country. I think it should be here. Right, we will definitely stay in touch. And also too, if you want to check out Gloria's previous interview with Natalie Cutler-Welch on Up Your Brave, do go over to realitycheck.radio backslash replays, uh, have a look at Natalie's page and you will find that interview there. So do also go and reference that as well. Either myself or Natalie will make sure that we keep people up to date uh, if that actually event takes place, because I think people will definitely be very, very keen to see that film. 
film. Uh, look, Gloria, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, stay in touch too. I, th- I mean, it's important that as this journey continues, uh, definitely when your book launches, I'd love to talk to you actually a little bit more about that once that's out. So that's October. So that's there we go. We can set a date, Gloria, <laughs> to catch up again. So that would be wonderful. Don't disappear, everybody, because of course, Media Matters is still to come. And I have a new man in the hot seat, a new man in my life in the hot seat. So don't disappear. Again, I want to thank Gloria for her time and very powerful insights this morning to the silent epidemic. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them with us via email to inbox at realitycheck.radio or by text to 2057. Remember, Gloria has been interviewed by RCR on Up Your Brave with Natalie Cutler-Welsh. So if you'd like to hear that interview, search it out on our replays page. As a parent of boys in their late teens, with the house closest to town, you get bombarded with hordes of kids just hanging out and chilling. Not too dissimilar to my place growing up in the 80s. Then it was boom boxes and tapes dubbed off the radio. Now it's a cell phone streaming service with Bluetooth speakers and voila, you have a party. Time for a counterculture flashback now. Keeping in the theme of the guests that we've had this morning, several weeks ago, I spoke to Roe Edge about the gender self-ID bill. This is what she had to say. Welcome back to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie, and my next guest is Roe Edge, co-founder of Save Women's Sport Australasia. Welcome along, Roe, to Counterculture. How are you? Good, thank you, Marie. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's great to have you here. You spoke to our Rodney a few weeks back. If you haven't caught that interview, head along to realitycheck.radio. Go to replays and you will find Rose's interview there with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And I wanted to pick up on some points that you spoke to Rodney about because it's such an important message. I think the first pressing thing is the recent implementation or passing into law the self-gender ID bill. So for people who haven't heard of this, can you walk people through that? Yeah, sure. So the Sex Self-ID legislation, it was part of the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Act update, and it came into effect on the 15th of June. And what it does is it allows anybody to change the sex marker on their birth certificate now just by a statutory declaration. There used to be a court process that you used to have to go through. I think it took sort of over three months to go through, but it just ensured that you were actually living as that sex, whatever that means, but, you know, that you weren't just changing it willy-nilly. So now anyone aged over the age of 18 can alter the sex on their birth certificate at will without any need of proof. Um, If you're age 16 or 17, you need a guardian's consent or just a letter of support from a third party. And under 16, a parent or guardian needs to approve that. So you can put on your birth certificate that you want to be male, female or non-binary, whatever that is, (laughs) and register on your birth certificate and change it back a week later if you want to as well as just a $55 charge now. So it's a really quick, easy process. Probably the most astonishing part of the bill is it's had very little, if any, public scrutiny because the media were just determined not to discuss it when when Speak Up for Women actually tried to hold a roadshow around the country to, to talk through the issues because there were so many concerns with it. You know, when they did the submissions, they did them in a level four lockdown and they still, like, which was just terrible because you couldn't campaign through that. But there were still over 7,000 submissions and over 70% of them were opposed to the legislation. Essentially, it makes a joke of a birth certificate because now 
they're meaningless. Whatever's on them doesn't need to be the truth. It's just whatever you want it to be. Well, then isn't there also a flow on effect when it comes to other forms of identification? I mean, your birth certificate is one of those set in stone foundational pieces of documentation. Not anymore. So what what happens when you go to apply for a passport or apply for citizenship? Um, Interestingly, um, your passport and driver's license years ago were able to be changed more easily. So now essentially we don't have any identification document that tells biological fact. That's terrifying. (laughs) It is, isn't it? It is. The biggest thing to know though is the one thing that Speak Out for Women did manage to get into the legislation was like some um, specific clauses that mean that the birth certificate can't be doesn't have to be used as a form of identification that service providers who are single sex service providers can actually request other forms of identification or make decisions based on biological sex too. But a lot of service providers currently think that because sex self ID has come in, they have to allow men who identify as women into women's safe spaces. But that isn't the case. But it's going to be have to be up to the public to educate them on this because our media will still not talk about it. So what about things like public swimming pools? They are often council-owned, local government-run. Yeah. I know that there's already a furore done in Southland around this. So how are councils at the moment looking like they're going to tackle this issue? Well, that is going to be up to the public to push them to tackle it the way they want them to. They'll probably, because we have so many weak leaders when it comes to gender ideology and implementing it, they will probably allow self-ID unless the public really push back against it. So basically the legislation says that it says that birth certificates can be used as evidence of sex or gender. Where service providers need to determine someone's sex or gender, other factors can be considered over and above the sex listed on a birth certificate. They're reflecting the fact that birth certificates aren't meant to be considered evidence of a person's identity, which you would think that they were, but not anymore. Now they're just useless. Now they basically just, the only thing you can guarantee on them that's correct is the date of birth and location of birth at this stage. Well, it's almost reducing that documentation into a piece of vanity, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So really we go back to um, the, like our Human Rights Act and that women can have single sex spaces where sex, size and stamina are like have an impact. But it really is up to women and girls and, you know, fathers as well to really push to ensure that if pools want to allow transgender people to use the bathrooms of their choice, that they have separate facilities for them to use and they can still provide single sex spaces. So they may have some part of the facilities that they can use, but that women and girls can still have their own single sex spaces as well. But you're going to have to push hard for them. Mm. In terms of those single sex spaces, because often, like using the pool scenario, a lot of pools have uh, family rooms, for example. So when dads take their daughters to the pool, the dads can't go, you know, they don't want to go into the women's changing room and the women don't want the dads in there either. So they have these family rooms so the dads can change their daughter's clothing and get them all ready for the pool. There has been some talk as that being an option, but do you get the feeling with the changing of this law, the flow on effect, 
the butterfly effect, as it were, has not really been considered. So they've considered the the virtue and the vanity of the law, but not actually considered the real world yeah. consequence. Oh, look, that's so true, Marie. I mean, we see this in sports policies as well, right? That the theory of it sounds lovely, you know, inclusion and all the rest of it. But when you put that into practice, you see Leah Thomas and you see the implications of Leah Thomas, which was the US swimmer that was that basically was a mediocre male swimmer in the NCAA, which is the college competition over there, transferring over to the female division and winning an NCAA final and basically using the females' changing rooms. And if any of the females said anything, basically they were threatened that they would be out of the squad. So, yeah, they, it hasn't been considered at all. I think everyone, we naturally want to be kind and inclusive, right, because we want everybody to have the right to feel safe and secure and to be able to play sport or swim or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. But we do need to ensure that we still look after the fairness and the safety of females because we have those spaces for very good biological reasons. One of the things that changed when I started reading more on these gender issues, and we share a mutual friend, so that's how she she boned me up on a lot of these things, excuse the pun. And yeah. she and one of the things I hadn't realized, because I know some transsex people, and they went through a full long process that lasted a number of years. Yeah. And they had both hormonal and surgical transition that was guided and counseled. Have no trouble with that whatsoever. They're good people. Yeah. Um, what I didn't realize with a lot of the gender ideology today is that the vast majority don't actually take those steps. They uh, self-identify or they have an identified change in gender, and that's where it ends. Uh, physically, they're still the biological sex that they were born with. So from what I understand, Leah Thomas was walking around with his meat and potatoes and um, no melons to see anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so by far the majority don't have any surgical intervention at all now. But you don't even have to have a medical intervention now. It can just be how you want to identify. It's what you say. It's all about feelings. It's nothing to do with facts. You know, we talk about um, changing rooms and stuff, but there's even there's even places that are, are worse than this, where this, this has the ability to create real harms for women. You know, care providers for your elderly mother or a disabled female you're going to have to make sure that if you know somebody, like if your mother or you know a disabled sister or family member needs a female carer, that you insist that they must be biological female. Because you can imagine if a male came in and you had a disabled woman or an elderly woman who couldn't verbalise if there were problems, that like it could just be an absolute disaster. And how uncomfortable would they feel and not being able to express that? There's also kids' school toilets and changing rooms as well. You know, we've just we it feels like, you know, we for years we really worked on safeguarding female spaces, safeguarding our young girls, and now we have chucked that all out the window with this gender ideology. So at schools, you need to make sure that you talk to the, you know, the principal there to make sure that the girls have female-only toilets and changing rooms to use, because otherwise what happens is girls start withholding liquid so they don't have to go to the toilet, or they'll hold on, which leads to urinary tract infections, or they'll actually leave the school to find a toilet where they feel safe. And this is actually happening in New Zealand now. Playing devil's advocate, there are some journalists that are calling this the dog bites man situation, where there are a few incidences that have been reported and been over-exaggerated in the media in order for, they call them anti-trans activists or pro-women supporters, to try and strengthen their position. 
How many issues or encounters are being reported or is it one of those things like sexual assaults, for example, the vast majority go on unreported, you don't hear anything about it and it's only until you have the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and something truly dire has happened that you find out about it? Yeah, so for a start, I would say the media refuse to report anything. So that's very rich of them to say that, you know, there's only a few things reported because, you know, we've tried to send them information on things that have happened and they refuse to acknowledge them or report on them or do any investigation into them whatsoever. I would say it's very much like the sexual assault thing. I would say that most in, most people will just feel really, really uncomfortable and leave and stop using those spaces. And we know of that happening already. Yeah, it's just, you know, unfortunately, the inclusion of males in female spaces and places excludes females. We don't feel comfortable. And what we should not be doing is teaching our young children not to be aware of safeguarding issues as well by putting male bodies in these spaces when they're younger and teaching them that that's okay because then their guard's down. And if there is an issue, how are they ever going to know, you know, that that normal fear won't be there that would actually keep them out of that that particular situation? Yeah, I think a lot of it too is the fear of speaking out and being called anti-trans or a transphobe. I mean, we all saw what happened at Let Women Speak event in Auckland and just how malign, you know, anyone that comes out against all of this is. This is pro-woman, it's not anti-trans. You know, we want trans to have their space as well. But it seems like that it's only their feelings that are considered and the feelings of everybody else now are just inconsequential. Traditionally, when it was genders were being switched, it was most often male transitioning to female. Now, I, from what I understand, it's now actually come back the other way. It's almost like a social contagion where women, young women, are now wanting to transition to become young men. And this is often where the puberty blockers start coming into play. You have social transitioning first, but once medical transitioning happens, it happens at a time that things cannot be reversed. Are you hearing of, of these sorts of things where yeah. these social oh, transitions like and medical transitions are starting to happen with dire consequences? Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It really is. I mean, you know, we've always had social contagions with young females. When I was young, it was bulimia and anorexia, and I got caught up in that. Then it went to cutting, and now we've got trans. And unfortunately, in female friend groups, if one or two people within that group start doing that it is contagious around the group it's like the girls all sort of come in and support each other and end up doing a similar thing and so you do get a lot of social contagion but we're also teaching girls now like puberty is terrible right did any of us enjoy going through female puberty it totally sucked right we are now telling kids they can opt out of that and it's all fine they can just make it go away as if like magic like if we'd had that choice marie when we were younger we probably would have gone yeah whoa, that sounds great. I don't want to have a period and I don't want my breasts to grow and all of that awful stuff. And so we're actually telling we're t- telling kids a lie and it's having profound impact on them. The only, the only hope is that we've seen recently the NHS in the UK has basically no longer off- offers puberty blockers to kids. And yes, it's through a clinical trial. They've completely stopped it. It's also been stopped in Norway, Finland and Sweden, which were some of the first countries that really pushed this gender ideology because they've all seen that it is actually really dangerous to kids. Like the impact it has on their bodies, it doesn't just stop their puberty and then when they go off them, their puberty starts again. They don't ever get that growth back. So if you're a little boy that's put on puberty blockers, 
the penis will never grow past the point it is when they go on puberty blockers, which is, is just unbelievable. With yeah, with it stops the bone density, bone growth, brain growth. It's just appalling. And the majority of kids that go into puberty blockers, they get put on this pathway to transition that then involves cross-sex hormones. And once young girls go onto cross-sex hormones, onto testosterone, their voice deepens forever. They grow hair. They pretty much can go into early menopause. They can become infertile. Many of them don't ever enjoy an orgasm in their whole entire life. These kids can't consent to this when they're teenagers. They just can't. We all know that they don't have the cognitive ability to do so. And I just can't understand why we're pretending that this is all okay. Yeah, and then there's the two elements in terms of affirmation. You know, schools are told that they must affirm someone's self-chosen gender identification, which, as we've seen recently with the teacher, the maths teacher, that has another whole set of consequences. One of the things that I find really disturbing, having spoken to educators that have got kids that identify this way, is often it's a chicken and egg when you've got parents who are very invested in the ideology. Is this something that the children are doing in order to please and satisfy the parents or are the parents living their lives vicariously through their children? It's, I mean, I've seen that too, and that's really quite frightening. I haven't seen it in New Zealand, but I have seen it online, like over in the States, where it is very scary, like transing their kids when they're still little kids. <laughs> How do they know? I mean, like little boys love dress ups, you know, like my kids used to quite often dress up in, you know, girls clothes and boys clothes. I despair at the fact that what we're doing is rather than being inclusive, inclusive of all this diversity is now we're narrowing people down to really old fashioned stereotypes. And if you don't fit a box, then apparently you're not right and we must change you. Welcome to the world of critical theory, because critical theory is all about applying you into a very self-defined label. And then within that label, you fall into one of two groups, which is either being a victim, uh, an oppressor or oppressed, essentially. And within that, there is a totem. And funnily enough, uh, trans is right at the top of the totem. So depending on what box you tick, trans will sort of outwoke anything else along the box. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of this critical gender theory has become so popular because it allows you the greatest amount of power within that social paradigm. And it is certainly something that we're seeing and it's creating a schism too. There is definitely a schism amongst the LGB community, amongst the trans and the rest of the community. Uh, They're certainly seeing it, and some of the most vocal opponents of this uh, ideology are lesbian women because they are seeing themselves very much threatened. Oh, totally. We even had our Human Rights Commissioner tell lesbian women that there's no such thing as same-sex attracted anymore. It's same-gender attracted. So essentially, same-sex attraction doesn't exist, or if, if it does, then they're homophobic or transphobic. You know, it's... It is just completely and utterly nuts. It is nuts. Now, you mentioned uh, Leah Thomas earlier before. There has been Senate hearings in the United States around this. Riley Gaines, uh, who was the swimmer that came second to Leah Thomas, has become quite a vocal activist in this space. Have you been following those hearings at all? Not closely, but I did um, hear Riley. Riley actually tied with Leah Thomas in an event, and Leah was given the trophy. 
and allowed to have all the photos. And Riley was told that one would be sent to her after the event. So this is a female event, right? This is the pinnacle of Riley's whole college, like her last year at college. And she basically podiums in an event, but because she tied with Leah, Leah, the male, was prioritised over the female in her own event. It was appalling. But I did hear um, there was a somebody, a human rights person on one of the um, events that you were just talking about, and she was asked, is it fair? And she was saying that um, oh, Serena and Venus Williams, you know, no male could beat them. And it's like, oh, my God, the 203rd ranked male tennis player played them and completely thrashed them. And luckily, Riley you know, pulled her up on that and said, well, actually, that's completely incorrect. So I have seen a bit of it. Yeah, yeah. she's a legend. I'm actually going to be meeting her in about, oh, just under a month. I'm going to the um, the 2023 International Summit on Women's Sport in Denver, Colorado. And there are some amazing women. Paula Scanlon, who was another swimmer that was in Leah's Penn team as well and forced to share changing rooms with them too. She's going to be speaking as well. Sharon Davies from the UK is coming over as well. There's going to be some incredible people there. So I'm really looking forward to it. How many trans athletes are actually competing currently in the New Zealand sphere? It's so hard to know, Marie, because sports will not disclose it. You know, we know, I think there's three that we know of in cycling. One of them has won over $8,000 worth of female prize money and podium positions in the last couple of years. There's another one that has um, won three of the female trophies for the club, their club last year. And I had a really long chat with a female that actually cycled at that club, and she said most of the women have left now. Rowing is another sport that I wonder would be affected by this because it's one that is such a you know a power based sport. I'm waiting for those first rowers because I think there are some trans rowers internationally but we haven't yet seen them in this country and with rowing being one of our blue ribbon sports here I do wonder whether at the moment we're seeing them in fringe sports in this country but what happens when we have players that are wanting to break into or males wanting to identify in sports like rugby where that could become dangerous could it not? Well I understand that there are some males playing women's rugby in New Zealand. We haven't been given the details of them, but we have to- been told there are some. You know, the New Zealand rugby unions are the ones that started off the whole process that led to Sport New Zealand developing their guiding principles for transgender participation because the New Zealand rugby union rejected world rugby's transgender guidelines, which said that they could not compete in female competition due to health and safety reasons. Like there was a 20 to 30% increase of injury if a male was on the field in a female game. And I couldn't believe it when New Zealand Rugby Union rejected it. But what happened is when World Rugby brought out their um, policy, there was a coordinated campaign by trans activists to every rugby union around the world, and they all became fearful of it. And so they said, oh, no, no, we can't accept that. We'll develop something that's right for New Zealand. So the NZRU went to um, Sport New Zealand and said, look, we need some funding to help with this. And Sport New Zealand said, well, if we're going to fund that, we'll develop guidelines for all sport alongside. But they knew the outcome before they even started because just before they had placed a transgender sport New Zealand have placed transgender guidelines, just a one pager on their website. Then all of a sudden they pulled them and then they went through this really long-winded, expensive process to come up with exactly the same guidelines as they had before, but they were just over 12 pages and and it had a whole lot of 
crap on them as well. So New Zealand Rugby Union, as we understand it, have been, we've managed to delay them announcing this because they wanted this policy out almost two years ago now. They've been consulting on it ever since, but we understand that that's self-ID as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see if they have the courage to bring it out or whether they're just flying under the radar and allowing it quietly and hoping nobody notices. Again, the ripple effect. I mean, what happens when you have an injury in rugby and the outcome is someone who is physically superior due to the accident of their birth? Yeah, I think in the US there was a game of rugby last weekend and three girls got injured with a a male on the field that were pulled off. Yeah. It is it is quite scary. If people are wanting to find out more information around this, especially around sport, A, where can they find information? And B, if they are seeing this in their own sports clubs, so they've got themselves are playing, they've got daughters playing, they have concerns, what can they do? They can raise them confidentially with us. They can either email us or through our website or contact us via Facebook. All correspondence will be completely confidential because we understand the issues around, you know, coming forward publicly. But if you wanted to come forward publicly, we would love that because the more people that do, the more confidence it gives to others to do the same. Right now that we all have this fear of speaking out because we've seen the backlash that happens to those that do, but that only remains when the majority of us stay quiet. And we know the majority of us agree. We did some polling when was it about February or March? And, you know, by far the majority of people do not agree with males participating in female sport and being in female changing rooms. We just have to give them the courage to speak up. But if they don't want to, they can definitely get in touch with us. We have a database that we're keeping of everyone that and basically that shares their stories with us so that we can build on that. Now, with the Sex South ID legislation, one thing they have said they're going to do is in five years' time, like they're going to monitor it and in five years' time decide whether they need to change it or not. I have no idea how they monitor how many girls are no longer going to play sport because they don't feel comfortable on the field or in their changing rooms. Like, how do you research and analyse that? It just, yeah, how many how many women ex- exclude themselves from female spaces and places because they don't feel safe? But we need to try to work out how we can hold them to account with that. Mm. So those details again, Save Women's Sport Australasia, what is the website address? Yeah, it's savewomensport.com or .co.nz. Our Facebook page is just Save Women's Sport Australasia. We're on Twitter as well. So you'll be able to just find us just by Googling Googling us. But yeah, definitely, if you know of anything, please please get in touch because the, the more information that we have, like we can just keep building this database and we can use that to try to push the government to reverse this or to provide better protections. That's fantastic. This is Row Edge from Save Women's Sports Australasia. If you've got any questions or queries or feedback for us here around this interview, make sure you contact us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Or text us. That number is 2057. Ro, thank you very much for your time this morning. We will definitely stay in touch because this is an evolving issue. And I think it's something that we need to continue putting a spotlight on because no one else in the media seems to be doing it other than us thank you so much for your time don't go away still more here to come with reality check radio and counterculture thanks for tuning in to rcr reality check radio if you like what you're listening to or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to then get in touch with us now you can text us with your message to 2057 that's 2057 
or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back. Good morning. You are with Marie here on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture, and I have a new man in my life. Very exciting. With Marty away over in the West Island in Australia, joining me this morning for Media Matters from Politics Explained is Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Marie. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. It will be nice to actually have a youthful point of view, which will be very exciting. I have to say, listeners, Tane is vastly more prepared than I am, so this is going to be great. We have dived in and had a look at everything, but first, Politics Explained, which is something that you do over on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Let the listeners who haven't heard that a little more about what that is. Sure, yeah, thanks, Marie. So once a week, I record a segment with Rodney on called Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit. And what we aim to do in about 15 to 20 minutes each week is cover off some interesting questions about how the political system works in New Zealand, but also covering international political issues and taking questions and comments from our listener base. So if you have a question specifically that you'd like us to cover, uh, myself and Rodney, just send in an email or send a text into 2057. Yeah, and the email, of course, is inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, let's start with politics because let's face it, it's uh, it has been a big week in politics. Obviously, we're into the campaign launch time, so everybody is having conferences, launching their policies, getting the positioning set up for the election in October. But more than that, the wagons were starting to circle now for the Labour Party. I, I hope people are taking Chris Hipkins' blood pressure because it must be through the roof. You have what happened in Auckland on Thursday, the shooting, ankle bracelet, all the questions that have gone along with that. Opinion piece on all of that has been pretty much dominated the weekend papers. My personal favourite was Andrea Vance. Dear old Andrea, will the Auckland shooting be the moment Labour lost control of the election campaign? And then Kitty happened. What an embarrassment. Oh, man, I would be, I'd be running for cover if I was chippy. You know what amazes me, though, Tane, is the last poll was, what, 30% Labour were polling it? It just amazes me that there are still 30% of people that believe that this is as good as it gets. Well, the thing with Labour is that obviously a lot of their voters are switching to the Greens because the wokeness gets more and more extreme and Labour tries to stay closer to the centre. Yeah, I guess they're just not, they're just not tuned into the into the news or they're in denial, maybe. Mm, mm. And the Greens, obviously, they had their launch, I know, over the weekend as well. And from what I hear, it was, I mean, let's face it, all these launches, regardless of what the party is, is you're preaching to the converted, right? You're pe- preaching to the party faithful. The Greens are certainly picking up what I would call the activist vote. And then the Māori Party, Te Pāti Māori, I think, are also picking up some of those Māori voters who flipped over to Labour in the COVID election and then are deciding that they want issues more grounded, particularly those who are, again, in the more activist space. But there is, I think, a lot of Labour voters, well, voters who voted Labour in the last election, who must be sitting back and looking at all of this 
and feeling pretty homeless. And again, the number that I've seen, and it's the number that no one talks about in the polls, is the don't know number. That that don't know number is the biggest I've seen it in a long time. And that don't know number is the number that's going to win or lose this election. Totally. Maybe we should go through that list that you had of the various Labour stuff ups over the past few years. So, of course, yeah, I am going to go through this list because this is the thing that that I find incredible, right, is accountability and action. So there are a lot of commentators, including Vance, debaters raging around whether or not the perpetrator in Auckland last week should have been in prison based on the rap sheet that they had, whose fault is it, is the judges, are the judges influenced by the government of the time? All of that was swirling around. Alan is obviously big justice minister, would have been feeling that, and she obviously decided. I mean, Dry July was obviously not on her list of things to do this month, Tane. No. no she, there was that article, was it from the, the year before or, or 2021? Where she, 2021, yeah. Yeah, so 2021 was the year that she had uh, treatment for cervical cancer, and I know she was a big promoter of Dry July that month. She, of course, decides to have one or two too many, pop herself off into the, uh, into the company car and uh, bash into a back of a ute. What I find really incredible about this is – At this stage, they're not looking at charging her for the DIC. She was obviously above the legal limit for driving, but they are looking at it for the, I think, reckless driving and um, resisting arrest, whatever the official title for that is. Not good options. Resisting arrest is what sticks out the most to me. I mean, you know, create a story, excuses of why the, the drunk driving happened, but resisting arrest, just clown world. And the difficulty too, I think, too, for those officers I mean, imagine being the poor old officers that have to arrest a minister of the crown. I can't remember the last time a minister of the crown was arrested for anything in this country. So you've got that entire situation. But since this government has been in office, it is a laundry list of dropkicks and disasters and scandals that at any other time you would have a media baying for blood any one of those scandals would have put a significant dent into the popularity of the government at the time. And these are just the ones that I can remember. If you're out there and I've missed someone off the laundry list, 2057, send it in. Let me know who I've missed out. I was kind of, you know, thinking back in the old memory banks. Well, I mean, who can forget David Clark? David, I, you know, it's okay for me, but not for thee. I'll break the lockdown rules. David Clark in Dunedin. And then he also had another little scandal after that. But, I mean, he plonker. So we've got David Clark. And then, of course, there was Mecca Fightery, who originally had the police job, and then she lost the police job because it turns out that she's a bully at work and they didn't like that very much. So Crown Services had to shift Mecca sideways and out of cabinet she went. Now, of course, she's jumped Walker and she's gone across to Te Patamari. Who can forget Michael Wood? Because Michael Wood has memory issues with the shears and Mr River of Filth. Mr River of Filth. I don't think anybody in this sphere, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are quite happy about uh, Mr. Wood getting the wood. So he's gone. My electorate, Stewie Nash. Wow. You know, Stewie Stewie spent most of his time with his feet in his mouth. Blunder after blunder after blunder. Stewie is gone. Then you've got Gareth Sharma, more bullying. And he, in this, this time, from the other direction. And big call from him. But what did it do for him? Well, he's gone. 
didn't win a by-election. He pops up now as a writer and a columnist um, on the papers from time to time. I see him pop up and stuff. Chris Farfoy. Chris Farfoy. Well, remember, Chris Farfoy jumped before he was pushed because of the immigration scandal doing favours for his mates. That's never a good look, not good optics. And who can forget... Claire Curran having that secret little meeting with Carol Hirschfeld, which ended her job at RNZ, and no one even really got to the bottom of what they were meeting about. But Claire didn't last too long. She disappeared in 2020, and then there was Ian Lee's Galloway, who liked to play away from home, was quite busy. Uh, so he was he was gone. And uh, Louisa Wall, now she left, but she had a stinging valedictory speech in Parliament there was obviously bad blood between her and Jacinda because on paper, Louisa Wall should have been, I would have thought, right in Labour heartland. She was there in terms of she ticked the Māori box, she ticked the queer box, she ticked the sports star box. She had everything going for her and there was bad blood there. And I don't know, I should ask Cam because I'm sure Cam knows, but she was another one. That disappeared. So she didn't disgrace herself with it, but she, there was certainly unhappiness within the Labour caucus. I mean, this is like the world's most dysfunctional family. You've um, you've left one off. Well, sort of a trick question, but oh, who's I missed out? Oh, oh, leaving because she had no energy left in the tank. No gas in the tank, Tano. You know what I think it is? I don't think she could afford it. What is it now in Auckland? Knocking three dollars a litre. She couldn't afford the gas in the tank, like most of us. How on earth? Now, any voters can seriously consider that this mob, and this is even before we get on to the spending, this is before we get on to the this is before we get on to grants, print and spend. $193 billion is the current New Zealand deficit. $193 billion. But that's okay. Grant reckons, you know, oh no, we've got money. We've got money in the COVID fund. The COVID funds that it's borrowed and part of that $193 billion grant, that COVID fund. How much is it per person? I did pick this up from another news outlet this morning. So they reckon $151,000 is the average debt per Kiwi. So whether or not that's against it, 193, but I think that's the actual, the amount of personal debt that New Zealanders have currently is an average of over $150,000, which is a lot of money. The reality of it is, is that $193 billion? There's my kids that are paying that back and their kids that are paying that back. But that's okay because, you know, the tax of envy, which is now out there. Tane, have you decided who you're voting for? You don't have to tell me who it is, but have you? are you in the I know what I'm doing camp? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Oh, you're doing better I mean, than me. I would never say yes right now because of the, there's two months or plus, there's 83 days. Until yeah, it's a lot of water to go under days. the bridge. I've never been this undecided this far out from an election. I've been at this since I was 18, don't I? It's, it's quite unsettling. Yeah, I'm still undecided. I think I'm definitely there with my candidate vote because, I mean, let's face it, we all get two votes. You've got to remember that, and you're allowed to make them different, which is, you know, the whole point of MMP. I think I'm having to reconcile that I'm going to go with heart and head, candidate with my heart and party vote with my head. Interestingly enough, John Tamahere and Te Pāti Māori are actually trying to encourage their members to vote Te Pāti Māori for the candidate and Labour for the party vote, which for a minor party is quite interesting that they're doing that 
I mean, if I were Tamahiri, I'd be knowing full well that the, they've got almost two seats in the bag with Wairiki and Ikaraua Rafati. Fairly likely that those two, you know, Mecca will swing that and Rawari will hold it, that he's not just trying to pack in more MPs on the party vote for Te Pāti Māori and, and encouraging people to go Labour. I I don't get that. Yes. Unless Is it not, are they sort of not shoo-in for the, some of the Māori seats and then therefore they want to ensure Labour gets the total victory so so they can go in coalition and rule? Yeah, but the coalition is, is based on the fact that they still need to win a seat or they get over the 5% threshold. Now, their greatest chance, as we know, because most of the Māori electorates are around, what was those, on average around 35,000 voters. How many turn out? I don't know, probably only a fraction. I think they have the lowest voter turnout of the electorates. So your chances of winning a seat, you've got to convince a smaller number of people in each of those Māori seats in order to win. But I just find, and he's obviously concentrating on that. He's concentrating on making sure that um, Rawari gets over the line, Mika gets over the line. Debbie's out your way, isn't she? Isn't she? Hold, isn't she? Uh, yeah, so- she's, she's South Taranaki, I think. So, yeah, so I, I don't know whether how what, who the incumbent Māori MP is out in your direction. It's, yeah, he's, he, that's, I just find that really fascinating. I would have just gone go for golden and, and try and get both ticks, but obviously that he's got a plan, obviously, John. Uh, so that's what's going on there. And then there's a lot going on in Northland. Uh, did you catch the crunch with Cam on Thursday? Yeah, bits of it. Well, the thing is, it was disappointing, though, that we were unable to get the National Enact people on. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So if you haven't, if you are listening out there and you're wondering what I'm talking about, Cam Slater now has a new show on Thursdays. It's called The Crunch with Cam Slater. It is now up on replays. It's uh, 4 4 p.m. live on a Thursday. Cam, of course, is literally born into politics. It is in his blood. He has got a black book that's like an encyclopedia. He knows everybody. He deals with everybody. And he did a show on Thursday that was an election special for the Northland electorate and looking at the candidates up there because from that electorate is one that is going to be interesting for people. It is, uh, you have Willow Jean Prime, who's the incumbent, uh, but she's, uh, where is Willow Jean is one of the catch cries up there because she doesn't spend, I think, spends a bit more time in Wellington than she does up north. Uh, Shane Jones is contesting that. Of course, Matt King from Democracy New Zealand. Mark Cameron, who is already a sitting MP on the list for ACT, is in that electorate. I can't remember the national candidate. Apologies for that. And there's, I think, also a Green candidate up there as well. And Cam had reached out to the national candidate and the ACT candidate. And initially they were like, yep, we're all there. And then they were like, nope, no, we're not. <laughs> and so he spoke yeah. to Shane Jones and and to Matt King. So that was, you know, that was something. It's a real worry that you've got these three from the sort of centre-right, Matt, the national guy, and Shane, and they could end up uh, splitting the, the centre-right votes and you have the, the Labour person win. I know, I know. And the, I've been voicing this now for months. And the reason I've been voicing this for months is we saw this happen in Napier. 
we saw this happen in 2014. So that happened here. It's how we got Stuart Nash, basically, a split vote. National should have done a deal with with the Conservative Party. And we had a very, very strong local candidate here who was well-respected. He was the head of the Sensible Sentencing Trust. It was the time of the home invasions. So it's all ram raids currently. 2010 to 2014, there were a number of very high-profile high home invasions. The Sensible Sentencing Trust went out there and they were really trying to make sure that these violent criminals were not being let off with these sort of butterball-type sentences. Now, it does fast-forward to nearly 10 years. Not a lot's changed since, but we ended up, that's what happened there. The votes were split between the Conservative Party candidate and the National Party candidate, who both polled together combined 50% higher than Stuart Nash, but they handed the election to Stuart Nash. Northland is going to be a battleground. There is going to be a poll, and that poll is going to be released tomorrow. So if you're really interested in what's going on, you need to listen to The Crunch with Cam Slater live four o'clock tomorrow, because that those poll results will be in. And especially if you're in that electorate, it will give you a very, very clear idea of what your fellow constituents are thinking of. People need to start being clever because th- this election could be won or lost on Northland. Now, what else have you seen in terms, I know Winston had his launch uh, a couple of days ago. Have you caught up with some of that? Yeah, I did actually. I tuned in to a part of most of his his speech on, uh, I think it was 2 p.m., started at 2 p.m. on Sunday. And uh, yeah, it sounded good, um, as you know, any politician makes their speech sound. But I, I like to hear the points he's making. And I like the slogan, taking back New Zealand. And I like the fact that there is an anti-mandate doctor. I mean, I hate that term, anti-mandate. You know, they equal choice for for working conditions. But the doctor, Dr. Michelle Warren, is a candidate for New Zealand First. I see you also rolled out Casey Costello. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. that's what I was going to say next. She's great. For, For New Zealand First, apart from Shane Jones, the... With that, the electorate they're going for is not really what what matters. It's, no, it's, he's um, he's aiming for that five percent definitely, isn't he? Yeah, but yeah, Casey Costello. If, if the listeners aren't familiar, she uh, obviously, in order to be a candidate, she just resigned as the spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge, which is a, a really really good. I don't know how you describe it. A, a, a lobby slash think tank that advocates for equal rights for New Zealanders, and they've been doing that uh, a tremendous job for for a number of years. So. Um, she comes to the the election campaign with a lot of experience and uh, knowledge on on a really key issue, which everyone's talking about, which is co-governance. So, mm. a big win for for New Zealand First to get her on board as a candidate, and also to crime and law and order because she's an she's ex police, if I remember yeah, rightly. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So she's, she's also got... a, a, a former candidate for New Conservative. So, I think that that does play in as a factor in some people's decision because they mm. know her from from that. Yeah, and, and she's also had some experience in campaigning uh, as well. So I think he announced, was it uh, four or five new candidates at the event? So that's, you know, he's starting to pull his, pull his people together, which is really, really good. Um, what The thing that stood out for me was in terms of policy, was the dropping the GST off fresh fruit and veggies. 
Yeah, I'm no economist, but not enough attention is on the cost of living and healthy eating. Him putting that forward is a, is a good step in the right direction there. Mm. But the thing that I found really, really interesting is the spokesman for Deloitte's, who was on the tax working group, put out a statement after hearing that, dismissing it out of hand, that it was something that really shouldn't happen. And this is, and he said, because we discussed it in the tax working group, and it was because they dismissed it out of hand, because GST, as we all know, is the one tax that is completely equal. Every single person is the most equitable tax that we have in this country. Everybody is treated with GST the same way. Doesn't matter what color we are, where we were born, what we earn, where we live, what we don't earn, what we don't do. Doesn't matter. GST, 15% on everything. Everything that we buy has got 15% or everything we use, 15% GST and vice versa. So it's completely a level playing field for everybody. The tax working group, when Jacinda pulled that together back in the day, uh, they dismissed that on the basis that rich people could afford more expensive food. So therefore, by dropping the 15% tax on fresh fruit and vegetables, it would be the wealthy that would benefit the most because they could afford to eat more expensive food. That policy, whilst it's not going to set the world on fire, it's practical and other countries do it. It's relatively easy to implement. But the thing is, it, all these things worth pointing out that it's just a policy, mm. proposed policy, and A, they have to get in first for it to even be a possibility, and then they have to negotiate for it. So, mm. To me, that would be one, though, I could see him wanting to negotiate quite heavily on. And you'd yes. have a lot of support from the public. Yeah, yeah. He's very, if he, if he does anything, he's quite good at picking those issues to actually get across the line to achieve something. Um, that's sort of been his track record. So in the themes of the paper, one of the things that I definitely noticed is across the weekend is he appeared in every single one. All the little media lovies out there, I think they've all got the jitters. They've all got the jitters at the thought that actually the old bastard might pull this off. Yes. And I think they're all a little bit scared. Now, whether he does or doesn't, we don't know. But they're certainly, to be giving him the column inches that they're giving him, says to me that he's on target of what he's doing. They're trying to sort of slap on he's running on the, the freedom, anti-vax, anti-mandate, disillusioned crew. Whereas, to be fair, he has spoken to Cam. He's running to me on a lot of other policies other than that. He's running on the traditional nationalistic policies that he's always run on. But he's the only candidate who isn't, doesn't have ostrich syndrome and is at least prepared to say, well, we'll take another look at that and why are these mandates there? These are ridiculous. It's a very easy issue to campaign on for whatever reason. Other mm. parties, I mean, I mean, in terms of the National Enact, because they were in opposition while this all rolled out, the COVID response, but they're not really using it to their advantage um, like Winston is. No, no. David tried to roll things back and claim that he wasn't pro-mandate and wanted to put together uh, it, well, he did advocate using rat tests. Yes, he did advocate using rat tests, but he still voted in the House for those mandates to go through. So you can say that all you want, but he voted for it. If he 
didn't vote for it and said, look, no, I think people need to have that choice and these other options, then I'd have a bit more respect from him. But he's, you know, it's like that scorpion and a frog analogy. That boy's tail has gotten quite big. The other issue is some made some poor decisions on, like they put out that article, uh, Vax Bucks, $250 incentive for, for people getting oh, tax reduction. Right? Mm. Do you remember that? Act? Yeah, I do. Um, and for their voter base and their prospective voter base, that was a completely low return thing to put out. You're not going to excite anyone over that. You, you, it's just sort of reinforcing government messaging, which you're supposed to be against, and alienating uh, a portion of the people who, who in the past voted out. Yeah, they, they made some bad decisions uh, in the last couple of years, and we're seeing now the, the kind of gap that Winston is, is trying to fill for people who care about their freedom and were mm. dissatisfied with all the other parties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will be waiting with bated breath for that Northland poll tomorrow from Can because Matt King is putting a lot of eggs in that Northland basket. Totally. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. It's huge kind of the only way for, for, for that party, I, I think. Yeah, and in terms of other freedom voters, of course, and I'm trying to, I'm working with um, Bex to the, in the Māori seats. Uh, I know Hana Tamaki is looking, I think, at uh, standing in Tamaki Mikaro and uh, was Donna Pokeri Phillips was, I think, I can't quite remember whether it was Northland um, or the Hauraki, but she's also looking at standing in a Māori seat as well, which is actually really clever, as I said, yeah, because yeah, a number I'm, of constituents, yeah, because a number of the constituents in there is a lot, lot smaller. You've got a lot less people to sway. And also, I think the one set of voices, Marty and I talk, this, talk about this a lot, the one set of voices that have been forgotten during this election campaign are the conservative Māori voices, because those are people that tend to be very quiet and reserved. They don't necessarily put them put themselves out there in the forefront. They will vote very, very conservatively. And I know that Karina Shields is doing a lot of work to sort of try and encourage those voters actually off the Māori role. Uh, and of course, now the time to do that has passed. But she was trying to convince them off the Māori role to actually vote uh, on the general role because then they have more choice. But if you were a conservative Māori voter and you were somebody that believed in the values that you had within your own hapu, you didn't like the activism of Te Tiriti or Waitangi, or if you were a follower of Hei Whakaputenga, because let's face it, that group and the Te Tiriti group, they're not exactly simpatico on all of these issues. No. Or you're someone who has seen this Māori elite, the self-entitled, self-imposed rangatira of both Te Pāti Māori and the Māori caucus and the Labour Party. You know, Hana and, and Donna could actually capture a lot of those votes because National isn't necessarily, I don't, I don't know, I think they could be running a candidate, but they certainly are not trying to appeal to them. It's great anytime people think outside the box in this political space. Uh, that's something that... Rodney and I have discussed on, on Politics Explained. I think um, there's an episode called How Many Members Makes a Party? If people want to hear about another out-of-the-box way of looking at, at this election and in future elections, because the repeat approach, you know, I was around in 2020. Before then, uh, this repeat approach of, of minor parties going for the 5%, it's, um, I'm not saying it'll never happen. But well, it hasn't happened yet. 
Yeah. I don't think there has ever been a minor party that have gotten 5%, gotten over on the threshold. They've always had an electorate seat. Marty and I talked about the Greens. He thought uh, the Greens had gotten over the 5%, and they had back in the day with Jeanette Fitzsimons, but she did win Coromandel too. So that sort of gave them the double whammy in. No, I think Rodney will know this, but I'm pretty I'm pretty certain no one's actually reached over the 5%. So it will be interesting to see. You were someone that was with part of politics explained. What happens for those that don't aren't aware? So 7.8% of the votes at the last election fell to parties outside of the tent. What happens to those 7.8% of those votes, Tane? Yeah, this is a, a question lots of people put up. The votes are... One way of describing the mechanism is that they're divvied up according to the ratio of how all the other votes have been divvied out. So the party that's got 40% of the total vote gets 40% of those leftover you know, votes that can't count. Some people get quite outraged about that. I, I don't, I just see it as like the normal mathematical thing that would happen. In essence, the, I guess the, the key thing is you, the votes didn't end up counting. And then some people put up a different argument. They say, you know, and, and I sometimes think this way as well you know you're making a point you're making a stand so people some people do that you know that they want to have a, a totally clean conscience they might say you know and they're wanting to um, back their guy or their gal uh, their party and, and that's a that's a legitimate approach as well and then some other people think that maybe they need to be strategic mm. so, to each their own yeah well look what happened in 2020 and how that worked out particularly in those rural electorates mm. Before we head off, sure, I want to just talk about one other thing here, Domestic, that you brought up was with uh, Groundswell, with Countdown. They are calling, Bryce McKenzie is calling for a boycott of yeah, Countdown. So, so what's the story with that? Yeah, Countdown's, I'm just reading the article here, that basically that it's, it's to do with climate change. The head of sustainability had invited all, the company had invited all its suppliers, so farmers, to join its thesis program which requires suppliers to measure and report their emissions so because they're basing it all around you know the farmers emissions rather than the supply chain and and you know we and talk about the the actual crux of of climate change and how concerned we should be or whether or not we should even be concerned that's a greenwash discussion make sure you tune into jasper and don's uh, episodes to hear the the truth about climate change but in response to that groundswell co-founder bryce mckenzie uh, they've they've called for a boycott. It's being shared around on social media. I'm not sure how hard it will hit them, but I applaud this change of focus because politics is not just once a year, once every three years voting. Politics is also how you spend your money. You can vote with your wallet, vote with your feet, and who you spend time with and how you spend time with them. And yeah, I'm, I'm I applaud them for for calling for the boycott. Mm. A couple of things about this that I find really intriguing is that Countdown feel they need to have a head of sustainability. I mean, that falls under the Matthias Desmet bullshit jobs title, I would have thought. Just saying. I think it can get a lot worse than that. Really? Good girl. There's there's people in corporate jobs that are head of diversity and inclusivity and all Uh, sorts of things. See, I've been self-employed far too long, Tane. Yes, so they're wanting supporters to boycott the supermarket chain, which has 194 stores in New Zealand from Monday the 24th of July until Sunday the 7th of August. That's actually quite clever too. This is actually another really clever thing that they've done. They're doing it in a snapshot. And by doing it in a snapshot and saying to people, get behind this, do it this week, 
And then if things go back to normal the following week, it then actually could potentially, because these supermarkets track everything. They they track every uh, purchase. They will have these numbers absolutely down. By doing that, it will actually give them a key to say, hey, your consumers aren't happy here and you need to start listening to your consumers, which I think is really important. It doesn't surprise me that Countdown have done this. Do you understand how these supermarket chains work, Tane? Not as well as you, so please. <laughs> the reality of it is, is in this country, when it comes to supermarkets, we have a duopoly. We have Progressive Enterprises, which is Countdown Supermarkets on one side, and which is Australian, Australian owned, by the way. So they're on one side of the fence. So all the stores, and they cover uh, Countdown, which is now going to be rebranded back to Woolworths, uh, Fresh Choice, Super Value as part of that group, all fall under that umbrella with uh, Progressive Enterprises. Then on the other side of the fence, you have Foodstuffs. Now, Foodstuffs uh, runs a different model. Foodstuffs has uh, three regions. They've got Northern, Central, and Southern. And Foodstuffs are all owner-operators. So they're more the cooperative model. So within Foodstuffs, they start with four squares at the bottom, and you move four squares, New World, uh, Pack and Save, sort of in in terms of size. Being owner-operated, each store has much more autonomy than a countdown store does, for example. All of them, if you're a supplier that comes to these stores and having worked for companies that have dealt with them, both of them, they literally hold suppliers to ransom. I can see why the Groundswell team have had enough and they're fed up because they hold them to ransom over price. They hold them to ransom over over quality. They hold them to ransom over delivery. They have a thing called co-op. And what co-op is, and this is particularly in progressive, you see this in progressive especially, is if you want to go in with a promotion and you've got a lot of this product, you want to put this product on promotion, they'll say, well, how much co-op are you putting in? And what co-op stands for is how much money are you going to give the supermarket to allow them discount your product, but also display your product in, say, for example, a prominent position in the supermarket. So whether it be an aisle end or in the middle of the store, will it go in their catalogue for that week? Will it appear in their social media advertising? So if you're a farmer and you uh, um, you pull it all together and you're an apple grower, for argument's sake, and your apple, they go in as a cooperative and they say, right, we've got all of these New Zealand rose apples, we want to put these apples in, we're going to give you this great price for these apples, knowing full well that if that price is really sharp, that the grower's getting even less because the price has dropped, then they'll turn around and say, well, uh, yeah, you can do that plus $50,000 worth of co-op. And I can tell you right now, nine times out of 10, when you go in and do that, and I used to do this for shaved ham all the time, you'd go in there and do that, and it is essentially a loss leader. So you will supply your product into Countdown Supermarkets. That ham that you're buying or those apples or the booze, booze is a big one. Um, big one, yeah. Often when you see it on special, the supplier, whoever's supplying that is not making any money on it whatsoever. Or they do it, they're just doing it for the turnover and the positioning and getting the branding out there. Yeah. the uh, I'm not against supermarkets, but with the things we know that are on the horizon, with the threat of mRNA in food and in, in, in livestock, um, with ESG, with digitalization and cashlessness. We and the we 
as the consumers, communities and the farmers, the creators are all much more empowered on a, on other models other than supplying to massive supermarkets. We, we, there is going to be a shift in, um, there are, it's already happening. That shift is taking place overseas and it will happen here as well uh, with, with opportunities coming up. And actually there's going to be someone, a uh, sort of permaculture type expert who's going to come on, I believe next week, to to talk about something similar to that. So so I'll just pique your interest there. I won't, won't say who it yeah, is. Yeah, so it will be interesting. So I, I actually wholeheartedly support the Groundswell guys. You know, they I know that they get a pretty rough stick in the media. Uh, they're, they're almost lumped in with the likes of us. But what I love about them is that they there's a lot of support. There's a lot of support for farmers out there. Farmers have been given the rough end of the stick for a long, long time now. And if you're able to support the boycott, I think go to it. Uh, absolutely. I know I certainly will. Well, buying habits change. And I think you're right, Tane. Buying habits will change. And I think buy, buying habits need to change. And especially in a cost of living crisis, if what Countdown is worried about is stinging farmers for emissions, when really what we sh- they should be doing is making sure that the farmers are supported and product can be getting out there. The one thing I can tell you with these supermarkets, they are not losing margin they are making bank on everything that they're doing voting with the dollar we've seen what's happened in the united states with bud light and other consumer boycotts here look i know we're a lot smaller but when it comes to a duopoly uh you know if everybody decides for this week that they're going to pop to a foodstuff store remember locally owned and operated just saying locally owned and operated then you know that could send a message now let's pop offshore shall we one of the articles I picked up for this for this show is uh, it's one from the Washington Examiner, and the title is it's quite funny. Kentucky requires nurses to take training on structural racism and white splaining. I hadn't heard that word before. I, I presume it's like um, mansplaining, so white explaining. The Board of Nursing for Kentucky has mandated nurses to take an implicit bias course to recognize the history of racism in healthcare and threaten discipline for failure to do so. So when you hear about woke things in New Zealand and you think, gosh, New Zealand's messed up, we're not alone. It's happening all over the Western world. And I think that's something worth pointing out because I know quite a few people who like to focus on the bad things happening in New Zealand, thinking that everything's green overseas and it's not no and especially with the racial divides in the united states they're vastly more polarized on all of these issues across there in this article it cites a career nurse of 40 years experience and the training presented by the kentucky nurses association board of directors treasurer um erica brandford and delanor manson told nurses the that best intentions will not solve implicit bias in healthcare. In order to lead a meaningful change, any exploration of implicit bias must be situated as part of a larger conversation on racism and bias. And the opening slide of the presentation states, another slide showed a large picture of the Ku Klux Klan members burning a cross. This is straight out of Robin D'Angelo White Fragility. I mean, it's amazing. I kind of thought that they'd knocked some of this stuff out, but obviously not. It's still... Um, what's, that, what's that book? Could you just quick... What's that White book? Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, which is basically the woke white woman's Bible to white knighting. 
that so they read this and then they feel all empowered to go on and talk about explicit bias and and save people from their whiteness. I think it came out in about 2017, 2018. I actually read it, Tane, and it took me about six hours to read and it's six hours of my life I'll never get back. And most no, of it, but we need some people to sacrifice time to I become think, experts in what well, they're doing. I've, I've done it, and most of it was Ms. D'Angelo was sort of trying to externalize the fact that she's actually a racist and she's actually having to get over her big bad self. So, to get over her big bad self as a racist, she's now making everybody else's life miserable and taking on she's gone and pulled together the theories of postmodernism and neo-Marxism and turned it into this sort of Franken-baby of theory. And it's, yeah, it is something to behold, for sure. And she now gets massive money going around on speaking tours, telling people about their implicit bias and an argumentation. But this crazy world that we live in, right? Well, I'm just looking at the time. We've been chatting away for quite some time i've got a new feature coming up very very shortly don't disappear it is the woke news of the week and uh on the theme of implicit bias and racism i've got some news for you thank you very much tane again remind everybody when they can catch politics explained politics explained you can go to realitycheck.radio and under replays rodney hyde real talk and in that section you'll be able to find the replays of my recordings with Rodney discussing various political theories, strategies, and learnings from New Zealand and around the world. Excellent. And if you want to know about Māori electorates, you can jump on my recording with Tane, which is there as well. So thank you so much for um, sitting in Marty's hot seat and keeping me company this morning. Usually, Marty, I get Marty to do most of the talking, so everyone will be so sick of me by now. But it's been so good to no, have you on, Tane. As I said, don't disappear. We've got the woke news of the week still coming up here on Reality Check Radio, and you are with Counterculture. It's time for the woke news of the week. Welcome to our new feature. This is the woke news of the week. Some stories from here and abroad that certainly have an ideological bent. First here from New Zealand, positive discrimination and medical training could be set to increase. A group of doctors in New Zealand claimed that a major medical exam which determines who becomes a paediatrician is unfair to non-white candidates. The doctors say the racial bias is present in the exam, giving preferential treatment to white candidates with a pass rate of 93% versus a pass rate of just 40% for non-Caucasian candidates. This issue involves in-person assessments. The College of Physicians is now investigating the pass rate to address these concerns. The allegations came to light through a letter obtained by a local news outlet. The situation has raised questions about fairness and equality in the medical field and has sparked discussions about potential discrimination in the selection process for paediatricians. Having talked to current medical specialists, they state this issue isn't about racial bias, but meritocracy, stating all candidates are based on the same criteria, assessed on skill and competency, and any allowances made for students to pass on the basis of race would set a slippery slope for ongoing standards of medical care in New Zealand. Our Young New Zealander of the Year is writing a book. Chanel Lal, a 23-year-old LGBTQ plus activist, has written his first book called One of Them, a memoir. The book recounts what 
are very short life experiences to date, including surviving conversion therapy in the traditional Fijian village. Whilst a darling of the woke media left, Lala cited as being among those who called for a peaceful counter-protest against the pro-woman advocate Posey Parker when she visited New Zealand in March. A peaceful protest that saw an elderly woman punched in the head by a 20-year-old Gisborne man who was last month offered diversion by police who would grew it citing administrative oversight. An August court date has been set. Lal complains that since becoming a public face that opposes these high-profile situations means he regularly receives threats of physical violence. The negative reactions make him constantly aware and concerned for his safety whenever he is in public. But one can't help feeling that the element of wokest crocodile tears, especially as Lal has been known to publicly tweet comments such as... I am happy to be known as the fag that tore the fabric of society apart and destroyed the heterosexual dream, or if you and if your father, followed up by this Pakia man is an effing C, or go if yourself, you stupid asshole, and New Zealand is effed. Potentially, the final point is correct. Now from Italy, the Miss Italy pageant organiser Patrizia Marigliani said that contestants must be a woman from birth. This statement came shortly after a transgender woman, Ricky Cole, won the Miss Netherlands title for the first time. Marigliani criticised efforts to include transgender contestants, calling them absurd. She's been involved with Miss Italy since the late 1980s and stated that the regulations have always required participants be born as women. Meanwhile, Ricky Cole expressed pride in representing the transgender community and becoming Miss Netherlands. She will compete in the Miss Universe competition. Andrea Ponce of Spain was the first transgender person to participate in Miss Universe in 2018. Cole said that the Miss Italy competition decision was disappointing. The Miss Italy decision sparked online debate with some supporting it and vast numbers criticising it. What do you think? Text us again, 2057, with your views. And finally, for those who are hankering to see the Barbie movie directed by Greta Gerwig, the iconic doll comes to life in a satirical tale that attempts to challenge the patriarchy, misogyny and societal stereotypes. Margot Robbie plays Barbie, living in the perfect pink plastic world where everything seems flawless. However, Barbie faces an existential crisis, and with the help of other Barbies, she discovers that she needs to visit the real world to meet the person playing with her to restore things to normal. Accompanied by Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, Barbie ventures into the real world and experiences a culture shock. Ken becomes aware of the patriarchy and his self-obsession, while Barbie begins to understand the term male gaze and feels uncomfortable with being constantly scrutinised. As the story unfolds, Barbie meets Gloria, a working mother who works for Mattel, the manufacturer of the doll. Together, they confront the flaws of Barbie land and strive to take control of it. The film attempts to mix satire with humour and pop culture references. My spies tell me some jokes work well, but others feel far too woke and become very, very cringy towards the end. Have you been to see Barbie? Share your thoughts with me here on 2057. And finally, feedback on the government's proposal as outlined on the Safer Online Services and Media Platforms consultation document is due Monday, 31st of July, which is this coming Monday. 
Now, that is a mouthful, I know, but we prefer to refer to these proposals by what they actually really are, online censorship laws. What has been proposed is a serious threat to free speech. These online censorship laws, if enacted, would effectively make certain speech illegal under the guise of keeping us safe. Now, we've done the heavy lifting, so you don't have to. We've summarised the proposals, outlined how the censorship laws will impact on free speech, and let you know how you can have your say. Our easy-to-use submission template means that for as little as five minutes of your time, you can have your voice heard. Visit www.defendfreespeech.co.nz today. That's www.defendfreespeech, all one word, .co.nz. Make no mistake, these proposals are aimed squarely at media organisations like Reality Check Radio. Free speech is a fundamental human right and it's under serious attack. So do take action today, do it for yourself, and also do it for the future generations. That site again, www.defendfreespeech.co.nz. That's been the Woke News of the Week. If you've got some Woke News you'd like me to cover, send it to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR. Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep that feedback coming. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. Drop us a text. Send your comments to 2057. Remember, if you like the great content we bring you each week, please feel free to donate. We're funded by the people for the people. Just visit realitycheck.radio and click donate. Also, too, we've got merchandise available. You can find that under shop on the website so if you fancy yourself a cap a hoodie a t-shirt even stickers or a notebook you will all find that there you've been listening to counterculture with marie busky on rcr reality check radio radio, radio.